Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that's all about hitting rewind on the bands, scenes, and for this week only, films that we love. I'm Rick Martin and this, my co-host, is Sarah Jane Kemp. Hi Sarah, how's it going? Hiya, I'm good, thanks Rick. Uh, I'm at home, it's a Wednesday night. I've just been to, I went to the gym actually tonight, I did a spin class, well not a class because you can't do class at the moment with COVID. Uh, I did a Peloton app spin class on the bike and I'm ready to go for this podcast how about you yeah I'm just kind of gearing up for Christmas I took a day off sort of my day job obviously uh demo tapes we wish it was our day job but it isn't it's uh it's our bit of fun on the side I guess and um and yeah I took a day off the day job to go Christmas shopping today um I was thinking about this early I must be the only person in the country who hasn't bought a single present online this year I don't use I'm scared of using Amazon. I hate shopping as a leisure activity, so I kind of choose the quietest bit of the week when there's kind of no one there, almost sort of cheating the system. But yeah, I, I, I don't like buying stuff online. I much prefer just to kind of go into town and blitz it, and I think I'm just about there. I think you've done the right thing there because I was watching the one show earlier and uh, there's a lot of problems with online deliveries this year. So yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? There's There's a perfect cocktail of covid and furlough and not enough staff and too many people wanting to order things online so you've done the right thing today i guess christmas um kind of links in with the the sort of theme of the episode this week you know christmas being a time for many things you know for family you know the government said today that we're we're going to be allowed to to mix but be careful with it you know at least that's kind of not being cancelled it's a time for football i know my girlfriend loves the sky sports advert at the moment that specifically says Christmas is a time for football. She she loves seeing that. And I think more pertinently for our episode this week, it's a time for films. Um, so this episode definitely has a bit of a, a film theme, um, mainly because a couple of weeks ago, um, we became aware of this film, Giddy Stratospheres, right? Which is kind of a, uh, a love letter to the noughties music scene. As soon as we saw this, we thought, well, wow, this is kind of right up our street, right? Yeah, I mean, and you saw it, actually. You, you caught wind of it. But where, where was it that you actually saw it? Yeah, so I, I, it just happened. I just happened to come across it on um, on Twitter. Uh, they said they'd wrap filming. I did a little more dig, a little bit more digging, and thought, "Wow, this is basically the film equivalent of what we've been doing on this podcast." So we got in touch with the writer, uh, director, and star of the film, Laura Jean Marsh, um, who's also been in was in some bands uh, kind of back in the day as well. That's kind of a source material. So we've got her on a bit later on the episode for a bit of a chat. Um, but before that, we thought with it being kind of Christmas, uh, Christmas being on the horizon with having uh, an up and coming film director and star on the episode later talking about a film we can't wait to see. We thought, why not make this a bit of a special episode on the music films that we love? Um, so I, I guess I put some quite strict criteria down when we were talking, sort of planning the episode with Sarah. This is not music documentaries. It's not films with great soundtracks, although some of them will. You know, the, the criteria is it's got to be a film about music or at the very least starring kind of a a big music star I very much got uh, a lot of my suggestions poo-pooed didn't I Rick (laughs) I was was, was throwing them left right and centre and they weren't matching the criteria that you set so um, we wheedled I wheedled them down uh, and we've got a list of 10 haven't we yeah, I'm going to allow you to give some special mentions to to say films are good soundtracks or um, you know documentaries I might mention a couple but to be honest I think 
even this has kind of sparked some ideas in me that we could do some great episodes on like films with great soundtracks and maybe get a film soundtracker on or um you know even even documentaries I, I know you're not a big fan of music documentaries i love a good music documentary and i'd love to kind of do a special episode on that so i think we've maybe um opened a new avenue for episodes here uh, so yeah i did give you some quite strict criteria so i guess we could we could kind of kick off with that right we've come up with our list of 10 we've kind of argued this out um today and these are in no particular order we're not saying that number one is the best 10 is is the worst this is basically our recommendation of 10 great music films that uh, either if you've seen them before a reminder to go and watch them again or if you haven't seen them what better time than at christmas right absolutely so shall i kick off yeah so what's your number one sarah this is throwing me the number one. I know you've said it's in no particular order. I just want to reinforce that. Um, even though this film could well be a number one, I'm not sure, but it is, drum roll please, Walk the Line. So, 2005, directed by a guy called James Mangold. He actually also directed Girl Interrupted. I don't know if you knew that, which is another brilliant film um, around, you know, sort of maybe even earlier than that film. Um, it stars Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon. Joaquin Phoenix is one of my favourite actors in the world. You know, he's he's almost up there in, well, he's up there with another one of my favourite, which is Leonardo DiCaprio. Very underrated, I think. Um, and Reese Witherspoon actually won the Oscar for, for this film. So she plays June Carter and, and Joaquin Phoenix is Johnny Cash, right? Yes, absolutely. And he's, his performance is just incredible. Like he's, he's the best actor and I, I think he could probably, it also suits him. And I think what I've read at the time, I think when it came out, he actually was struggling with drug addiction at the time. So mm. it, it sort of, I think, played out within, in the film. And if you've watched it, you'll, you'll understand. But if you haven't watched it, you really do have to see the performance he plays. I mean, it's, it's actually quite sad because you know, you could see the, the way that drugs took hold of him and it's a very likely story for a musician and particularly musicians that go on tour. Um, it's, not, it's not uncommon for great actors to kind of have drama within their own lives, isn't it? And that's kind of what they they sort of draw on. And I, I know exactly what you mean with this. You know, some of his performances are so intense that it's coming from a real place, right? 100%. And you've got to remember as well that his brother died of a drug overdose outside one of the most famous clubs in the world. So it's something that mm. he's personally been very you know, affected by. Um, but yeah, I absolutely loved it. We, one of the things I have to say is my brother's got an obsession with Johnny Cash and he can't sing at all. I don't think there's a more tone deaf person in the world. Sorry, Matt. Mm. But if you, ever met, if you ever meet my brother, please get him to sing A Ring of Fire because it will never leave you. <laughs> And this is the thing for me that I'm, I'll, I'll admit I'm not a big Johnny Cash fan. It's the sort of music that you could have on if you're at a party or something or someone put it on at Christmas. And I wouldn't dislike it, but it's not something I go kind of straight for. But I think it's it's the power of the performance in this that it really kind of draws you into into that world. And and even the I think the performances, you know, the musical performances of, of Wakim and, and Reese in this in terms of how they sound. And, you know, it's, it's, clearly, it's clearly them singing. It's not them kind of, you know, mouthing along to... Johnny Cash tunes uh, yeah I, I think it's a great performance you know and obviously Wackim was hugely praised for Joker uh, last year and that's a great film but um, I'd say this is arguably an even better performance than that and that's saying something right absolutely oh I don't know whether I agree with you on that one um, I'd probably have to go back and see Joe I've seen Walk the Line a few times actually I saw it very recently but I've only seen Joker once so I'll probably go back and then I can tell you what I think to your comment afterwards but let's move on to number two so what's what's number two this is you rick 
Yeah, so this is England is Mine, um, which uh, came out in 2017. We're going to make sure we give a bit of info on each of these films for those who haven't seen them. Uh, and this is another biopic, biopic, biopic. I never quite know how to pronounce it. I'm going to call it biopic, like biographical. I think that's wrong, but picture. go for it. <laughs> biopic, biopic. <laughs> Who knows? But I'm going to keep saying it. And it's about Morrissey. Uh, it's written and directed by Mark Gill, and it stars uh, Jack Loudon as uh, the the mank miserableist um, himself, the Pope of Mope. Um, and it basically tells the story of, of Morrissey's kind of pre-Smith's days, um, and kind of the his kind of initial reluctance to get up on stage, and some of his sort of battles with um, mental health. And I think a lot of the source material of this was probably Morrissey's autobiography that came out um, a couple of years before. And yeah, it's I, I, I really enjoyed this. It didn't get the best reviews at the time from uh, from critics, um, but I kind of ignored those uh, and went and watched the film. And yeah, I was, I was kind of, again, I think um, Jack Loden really does a great job of kind of, um, of portraying Morrissey in this, of kind of inhibiting um, that kind of persona. And I think, you know, what's interesting, as I was saying before, is this isn't like a film that's about Morrissey's whole life. You know, a bit later on, I don't want to give anything away. We're going to talk about some films that, cover quite big periods of of, of sort of um, musicians lives this isn't that this is just the period between you know him leaving school I think and and then joining the Smiths and all the things that kind of happened in sort of the intervening period mm, and you've got a great uh, I think you were, we were talking earlier about uh, you've got a quote from the film so what is it what was the one you, you particularly remembered from it yeah, I thought I thought this was really nice where, you know, Morrissey in his kind of typical um, sort of style saying, you know, time is the most used noun in the English language and I'm running out of it. And I think, you know, from that you can really get the sense that um, as kind of an outsider looking in, I mean, we it's almost unimaginable that Morrissey couldn't have been a pop star, right? He was so unpop star that he was such a great pop star but at the same time you can see from that he had that real kind of self-doubt that he could he could do it um you know and in the film um there's kind of the dramatization around his friends his friends and family kind of encouraging him to get over that you know he, he was very much a kind of you know bedroom poet really until uh, sort of he met Johnny Marr and and some of the other guys in the bands he was in before the Smiths um and I think that really kind of comes across in this film and I think the other thing I like about this is it kind of harks back to a time where it was okay to be a Morrissey fan um it's not been a great place to be in recent years he's kind of become like that um it's kind of become like that grandparent who's quite right wing that you have the arguments with at Christmas if you know what I mean where it's clear that you're kind of political and maybe social opinions have kind of diverged uh, quite far. So, you know, it's almost like, I always compare it to like Michael Jackson. You can kind of divide Michael Jackson into the period when you were a kid when it was all right to like him and then some of the doubts that you got as you got older that, that, <laughs> that, that maybe there's some problematic things going on there, should we say? That That is very much a conversation as well. Whenever I go to a party and someone puts Michael Jackson on or R. Kelly, actually, some someone inevitably in the room goes, should we be playing this? And then hmm. there becomes a big debate around the room of whether it's okay or not to be playing their music anymore. Another interesting fact about this film, actually, and I was reminded as I looked this up um, earlier, and I kind of reminded myself about the film, but one of the screenwriters, uh, William Thacker, hello, William, if you're, if you're listening, uh, I used to work with him in an early role, and neither of us, you know, certainly he wasn't, um, you know, kind of seeing the bright lights of, of uh, film script writing at the time. I think he's from quite a... A literary family i've got a feeling his dad's a pretty pretty big um kind of film screenwriter or, or he's, he's done something in that world but yeah at the time we were working for an seo copywriting agency writing 
30 articles a day on kind of you know boiler insurance and koi carp ponds oh my god i've heard so much about this rick was he with you there what 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 brilliant fact that is i had no idea about that that's that's amazing by the way for anyone listening who's not heard rick talk about his 30 article a day seo career you're lucky we (laughs) we hear this Almost, I think there's even an even uh, above your desk a joke about it, isn't there, or something like that? One yeah, of your, it, one of your it, team it, members yeah. put it on. <laughs> one of my team members put it where it says, "Back in my 30 articles a day days." It's like it's like your grandparent talking about back when the Beatles were around or whatever. But um, yeah, if you want to know anything more about how all that works, Goog- just Google uh, Adfiro Adam Afreiri because it did make it into the press eventually that there was this kind of content sweatshop being run out of uh, Manchester and Leeds and London a few years back. Um, thankfully, I don't do that anymore. But yeah, what, what a strange place to, to run into a, you know, a, a future, um, you know, a, a future film bod like, like Will. Um, so let's move on to your next choice. And it's another biopic, isn't it? Biopic. biopic. It is. It is. Um, and I put this one in there. And I remember when I was, you know, thinking about the list, I, I put this on there, but I thought, Oh, I'm slightly embarrassed to put it on there, if I'm honest. In 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 the fact that you know it's very it's been very divisive among fans and critics, and I can see why. But I've put it on there because I think the film is just really good and really so, feel good. So what is it? So it is Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay. So it's fairly new. So it was it came out in 2018, um, and it's directed by Brian Singer, and it stars Rami Malek. I don't know if I can ever pronounce his name as Freddie Mercury, and he's just got the teeth for it. <laughs> he's he's actually brilliant. Mm. Um, it was, you know, I think I personally I discovered Queen quite late in my uh, in my in my life. I guess like I was in my 20s, probably just over a decade ago. But when I did, oh my god, did I rinse them? And like I think I had a night of the opera on repeat for like years um but i think that's one of the reasons why i really was intrigued to see the film but also the director i was interested to see has also directed x-men so it's mm. a bit of a different film um you're you're not really sure about it are you no and, and i've got an interesting relationship with queen in the sense that um i can recognize the how important a band they were in the 70s how innovative you know how technically brilliant the song bohemian rhapsody itself is but some of it you know stuff like i want to break free and and stuff like that it it doesn't really sort of say anything to me i think killer queen's a pretty good record but you know i've also seen this film because i kind of wanted to see how rami performed in the role you know i I don't know if you know much about kind of the background of how the film came together but it had been in like production hell for about 10 years you know um originally sasha baron cohen was kind of slated to to have the role you know brian singer was the director and then he got fired halfway through it's one of those films that was really kind of mired in in production um problems i think when you hear about a film that's been so long planned uh, you know it's going to have Sasha Baron Cohen in it I can't imagine what the film would have been like you know I mean he's he's a brilliant character actor but would he have made it too comedic I don't know but you know um when a film's yeah, kind of had so that. many problems you kind of want to see what the end result is don't you yeah I do wonder about that because as you say I mean he's he's you know you can't deny that he's an amazing actor but I do think he will have taken it in the wrong direction I think what um Rami Malek was able to do was kind of bring that kind of um 
like intensity to Freddie Mercury, I think. Mm. And it, it did, I think I even might have welled up or shed a tear at one point because, you know, kind of going towards the end of the film and seeing how, you know, troubled he was in his later career and life, really, I guess. Um, I think he was able to portray that quite well. I think basically I really like the film because of Rami Malek. I think that that's what it is. And I, I think he could sing incredibly well um, and he just performed it well. But also another thing that you told me earlier was the fact that um, Dexter Fletcher um, was originally set to direct it, wasn't he, in, in the film's early development. And I think with him, I remember, can you remember a TV show called Press Gang? I absolutely do. Yeah, I love that. That's why I became a journalist. Well, maybe not quite, no but it was, it was certainly one of the things that I um, I was very aware of as a child. Yeah, and I, I've always made that joke of, oh, yeah, what was it like doing a journalism degree? Oh, it was like press gang, basically. Huh. We've never talked about that before. I was obsessed with press gang and weirdly obsessed with Dexter Fletcher. And I was really, you know, quite young, but I was so drawn to Dexter Fletcher in that. And um, I, yeah, I love press gang. It's brilliant. But yeah. I, uh, I, I'm sorry it's on there if, if people, I mean, are sort of embarrassed, but not embarrassed, but I liked Rami Malek's performance as Freddie Mercury. I, 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 th I think what I would say for me is I think it's one of those films that all the constituent parts were there, a great performance from Rami Malek. I think the music was good. Just what was lacking for me maybe was, I think it was so character focused on Rami Malek and, 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 on, and on Freddie Mercury. You lost a little bit of the, I love in kind of films like this where you see bands climbing the ladder and going from playing, you know, in a pub to playing in a stadium. And that seemed to me to take a bit of a, a bit of a back seat. And maybe that, that was intentional. Maybe it obviously was more of a character study, but if they could have just dialed up a little bit more of that, I think it could have gone from me from being like an interesting film to a great film. I can totally see why you enjoy it. And that's why I think it's right that we have it on our, our top 10 list in the, in the third position. Yeah, and there was another one that I was going to put on my list, but you beat me to it, which is the one you're going to talk about next. Yeah, so, um, and I guess there's, there's quite a, a sort of link between the two films in terms of Rocket Man. You know, you mentioned that Dexter Fletcher uh, was on um, was was on Premium Rhapsody. He was on the early version. When Brian Singh was fired, I believe he actually then went and finished the film. This is what I mean about it being kind of a weird production. But yeah, Rocket Man was directed by uh, Dexter Fletcher and starred Taron Egerton as Elton John. And this came out last year, so it's still quite um, fresh for me. And again... Um, you know, a bit like um, a bit like Bohemian Rhapsody, that had also been in development for many years. In fact, I read it had been in development for like twenty years, and they'd been through kind of multiple. Probably scripts Taron wasn't and... even born then. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But it's one of those, you know. I mean, I know neither of us have ever worked in the film business, but you hear about that whole development hell thing, don't you? Where kind of a, a script or an idea gets approved, but then it takes a long time to get made. So this this took a long time um, to get made. But yeah, I absolutely. Love this when I saw it. And I think what was interesting for me is I've kind of gone through a bit of a sort of Elton John phase in recent years. I think when I was growing up, I thought of Elton John as kind of that embarrassing dude with the wig that sang at <laughs> Princess Diana's funeral and did quite sort of lame pop. You know, a lot of his modern stuff, you know, his recent stuff is rubbish, right? But then I think when someone put me onto and said, no, you should actually go back and listen to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and some of his kind of 70s golden period stuff. And um, there's actually, I won't mention what it is, but one of the films later in the list has one of his songs on the soundtrack, um, Tiny Dancer. That might be a clue as to what's coming a bit later on. And that's probably the song that completely kind of flipped it for me. And I went, no, actually, this is this is this is really great stuff, and he's actually got a great catalogue. Um, even stuff like I'm Still Standing, I've kind of come to sort of know and love. But um, yeah, Taron Egerton got a Oscar nomination for this, and I think deservedly so. I'd say you know we were saying the performance maybe of Rami Malek was strong in 
in Bohemian Rhapsody. I think Taron Egerton is even stronger in this. He's a tour de force for me in the sense that well, Elton John is a complex character, right? You know, there's the genius songwriter side to him, but also quite troubled as well. And this film doesn't pull any punches in terms of showing some of that substance abuse stuff, some of the difficult things in his childhood, um, you know, his relationship with his father and stuff. And I think, yeah, it's 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 quite touching in in places. It's you know, it's quite quite an emotional quite an emotional watch. You've seen this as well, haven't you? What did you make of it? I have. I actually had a cinema ticket because you told you saw it at the cinema and said you have to go and see it at the cinema. And I had a ticket, but I was un, I was unwell unfortunately, so I ended up seeing it a few months after it uh, left the cinema, which was a shame because having seen it, I was I was thinking you know what a brilliant film it would have been to see in the cinema um, with kind of all the you know the, the great sound and everything like that, but. I really liked it. I, I, I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. Um, I have to admit, I pretty much like you didn't know much about Elton John and his private life before. Um, before other seeing other it, than so... the tabloid stuff, right? Other than the stuff we all know, you know. Yeah, yeah. What well, stuff we all know? But I guess this film goes back before we were born, right? Or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's loads of stuff that you just wouldn't know unless you're an Elton John fan, which I haven't necessarily been, although. I've always really liked the songs that you were just talking about. So Tiny Dancer, obviously, because of the film that you're going to talk about in a bit. Um, and uh, what's the... Oh God, what's Rock, the... Rocket Man itself, right? Well, I mean, well Rocket Man, yeah, obviously yeah. an amazing song. But there's one song that used to... Someone played it to... It's a really embarrassing story. A boy played it to me when I was 16 on a holiday in, a, um, in uh, Spain. And uh, it was... it was What was one of... What was the song? Um, hang on. What's your the... song, Candle your in the Wind. Your song. There we go. No, your song. I mean, how utterly cheesy is that? The fact that someone played your song to me as I was about to leave him holiday romance. Anyway, hmm. um, so I, I did know Elton John's old stuff. Um, as like with you, I don't particularly like the newer stuff. Um, I like the fact that you described him uh, with the wig and Candle in the Wind. <laughs> That's like a really interesting, like funny the, picture to think of. The old dude in the wig singing at Princess Princess Diana's funeral. That's what he was to me, to be honest. When I was, uh, you know, when I was young, that's that's how I thought of him. I'm surprised that he evaded you for so long, like being a music journalist and all. Like well, that's really interesting. It's, it's not so much that. It's that I, I don't think I'd paid enough attention to his back catalogue beyond the hits, right? And then when I went and listened to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, I mean, I loved that album beginning to end, right? It's very heartwarming music, and I reckon after this recording, I'm going to go and listen to some Elton John. Like I've got some very much got some some of his good songs planted on my playlist that I listen to frequently. So um, yeah, no, I really liked it. So I think in terms of emotional watches, uh, and again, the, the, the listeners might be detecting that we're trying to knit these together a little bit in a in a kind of logical list. We said this isn't in any particular order in terms of importance, but definitely we've tried to make this logical in terms of how we list them out. So next, uh, what, what was your choice? And I guess, why am I suggesting it might be quite emotional? Yeah, so uh, Control. So this was back in 2007, uh, directed by a photographer, actually, Anton Corbin. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Anton Corbin. Yeah, he, he basically Corbin. shot shot Joy Division uh, quite a lot for their, I think, some of their sleeves, but definitely for the enemy. Yeah, and it starred uh, 10,000 Things, um, a band that we've talked about before, uh, who I used to go and see a lot, actually, around uh, before this time. Sam, Sam Riley, who was the lead singer of 10,000 Things, um, and he played Ian Curtis. And uh, Samantha Morton played his wife, Deborah. And I think the thing, I mean, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, I think maybe in private to you, but it took me a long time. I wouldn't say I'm into Joy Division and I don't think I ever have been, um, but I do appreciate Joy Division and I very much appreciate Ian Curtis. But I think I was drawn to this film because I had 
not known, but I had been at the same parties as Sam and I'd met him a few times and he was always a really kind of big character within that industry. Um, I think overlooked quite a lot as well. So I was really excited to see him performing. And I think he did, you know, a, an amazing job uh, playing Ian Curtis. You know, not that I know Ian Curtis so well, but from what I do know, you know, I think he played a, a fantastic part. And, I, and, and he got rave reviews for it as well, didn't he? Yeah, and, and I think what was important with this, with this film, and I think why he was cast, because actually at the time, I think I did produce an article for one, I think it was maybe the local Nottingham newspaper, because a lot of it was filmed around Nottingham, where I was living, where your home city as well, yeah, exactly, obviously. and that's another reason I wanted to watch it, because, you know, going recognising all of the streets that they were filming in was just amazing. But yeah, they, they cast um, they cast Sam because they wanted someone who could do the musical side as well, obviously he could act, and I don't think Sam actually had much acting experience up to this point, but they wanted someone who could deliver, you know, who actually looked a bit like Ian Curtis and could kind of deliver on the musical side because when they play in this film they are kind of really playing sort of live um, and for real and and the, the film itself is actually based on on a book by Ian Curtis's widow um sort of Deborah you know that the, I guess that the mythology around uh, sort of Joy Division and Ian Curtis um you know it, it only intensified because you had people like his wife writing books that you know called touching from a distance which obviously is a is a Joy Division lyric, but you know that, that I think that kind of says it all. You know that that kind of relationship he had with his wife. You know he did have an affair kind of later on before before you know he did sadly die at the age of twenty three. Um, I thought what was also interesting about this film is the band members themselves. So you know as you probably know, Joy Division became New Order. So when Ian died, Joy Division was no more. But the rest of the members went on and formed New Order, which arguably was an even bigger band. You know Joy Division are probably the most kind of influential I think of the two but New Order were obviously stadium massive and they actually approved the film but then there was friction when it came came out because they, they were a bit annoyed that some elements weren't true and that some of it had been um I guess not not made up you know um if it's a choice between the uh, the truth and the legend print the legend right I mean I guess I'm interested to know from your point of view when you're watching a film about music do you care if they do fudge some of the truth to make it a better story? not and I think that's it, it doesn't just happen with music films it's the whole kind of uh, I read an article actually in the times at the moment I don't know if you're watching the crown or you're interested in that that series at all on Netflix I wasn't interested and I started watching it and I quickly binge watched the whole thing um and I mean you know that it's not you know it's fictionalized right to a point but people do get on their high horse about it, don't they? They get really annoyed mm. that it's, you know, but are people that stupid that they think everything they're watching is, like, actually happened? I think you would be stupid to think that, wouldn't you? Mm. I suppose the one thing they don't gloss over in this film is it doesn't have a happy ending. You know, if you know anything about Ian Curtis and Joy Division, um, yeah, it, it doesn't end well. So it's, you know, it's... Um, Maybe not a Christmas Day film, right? It's maybe if you are going to watch this over the festive period, maybe that kind of lull between kind of Christmas and New Year, because um, I think it's an important watch, an interesting watch, but um, there, there is no way this could really have a happy ending, to be honest. So I guess make steal sure, yourself if you haven't seen it, you know? Yeah, make sure you've got a, a box of Kleenex and um, you're in the mood for a cry, is what I'd say. Uh, so the next one, this is your choice, isn't it? Yeah, so I think probably a slightly more uplifting uh, choice. So this is Ray, um, which is the 2004 uh, biopic, biopic, biopic. <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to decide on how to pronounce this, of uh, Ray Charles, the uh, legendary rhythm and blues man, um, who, you know, I guess was obviously famous for his music, but was also kind of famously blind as well. You know, he was kind of a boy wonder um, sort of pianist. I guess there's some... 
uh, you know, pianist and singer. There's some, some, you know, some links, I guess, with Stevie Wonder in a weird sort of way. Different, you know, differences in the music, but you know, a similar story maybe in terms of of that ailment um, that he had. But yeah, um, again, I was saying earlier, you know, about watching films where I'm not necessarily a big fan of the artist and the film, you know, for that reason works on a kind of an even sort of deeper level for me and that it introduces me to someone whose hits I was aware of, but maybe didn't know kind of their full story. And I think that's down to Jamie Foxx. Uh, you know, Jamie Foxx is the, the lead actor in it. Um, what a good performance. You know, he won an Oscar for it. Not not a surprise um, at all. And yeah, um, if you haven't seen this and if you, you know, even if you're not, you know, a Ray Charles fan or you don't know much about that kind of early rhythm and blues scene, it's definitely worth a watch because it's just, it's musically brilliant and, it, and it's also dramatically brilliant as well. That's actually, I'll admit that I haven't seen this one and I'm, it's, it's kind of passed me by, I think, because I don't even really think I remember it coming out. I mean, 2004... Mm. I mean, that's quite a long time ago now, to be fair, isn't it? But um, I'm very much into that sort of music. So I will go and have a look at it, Rick. But it sounds really great from what you're saying. As you say, yeah, Jamie Foxx is, is just brilliant. And I think he could play any role. <laughs> like any role to, he gets given. He's a legend. I think we have to remember about 2004, though. And I, I get this, where there's gaps in my knowledge about certain bits of popular culture. Because you're about the same age as me. So you were probably at uni around 2004, 2005, or kind of college time, right? And... You know, A, you're too busy going out to gigs and having a good time. And B, there wasn't Netflix. There wasn't, um, you know, certainly I didn't have Sky Movies at home, right? And and I didn't always go to the cinema. So I actually think, you know, these days it's not difficult to keep up with what's going on because it'll either be on um, Netflix or, you know, DVDs are very cheap or, you know, it'll be on the TV. Stuff was on the TV then, but I think there was less access to media, wasn't there, back in 2004? So it's not difficult to think why... Maybe you missed this. So what? I agree, but actually, uh, I think it's it's hard now even to find things because some of the you know I, I, I bet you any money the majority of this list isn't on Netflix and isn't mm. on any of the other the mainstream streaming channels. God, that's a mouthful. I always find that the best films aren't on these streaming channels, so mm. I, I, I don't know where I'm going to see this because I don't have a DVD player anymore. You know, I could maybe buy I could probably buy it off YouTube or something. Anyway, I'll probably look into it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still it's still findable. Um, listeners, if you have if you have a way that Sarah can watch your copy of Ray, please uh, please do get in touch. Um, so we're up to number seven on the list now, and I guess this is where we're going in a slightly different direction. In that this is very much a film about music, but up to this point, these have all been about specific bands or scenes or artists. This one isn't about a band or scene or artist, but is very much musical. So, um, what is it? Oh my God, I love this film. It's called Whiplash. And I was introduced to it only a few months ago by my boyfriend, I think. We were kind of flicking through what to watch on Now TV, I think it was, one of those one of those streaming channels that I was just saying that wasn't very good, but obviously does have some good stuff. Um, <laughs> so it was, made, it was created in 2016, directed by uh, Damien Chazelle. Um, and it stars Miles Teller as Andrew. Uh, and he is... Uh, this young drummer um, and he goes to Schaefer the music school and he's very ambitious but he's not naturally talented I guess and he has to work really really hard and sort of uh, sort of sees that there's uh, an opportunity to to really like you know develop his career I guess like his music career um, when he runs into Terence Fletcher who's a, a ruthless jazz instructor and and he's really not very nice. Um, and it's uh, the reason I love the film is, is kind of twofold. One, he's playing the drums, which is we've 
talked about before, my favorite instrument and uh, watching him kind of go through that hardship and, you know, seeing his fingers bleed and all of that just to, to progress and impress someone was amazing. And then also I love the, the relationship between the, the tutor and the student, which was heartbreaking. And you, you know that this kind of stuff happens out there. Um, and it won an Oscar. So it actually won three Oscars. So J.K. Yeah. Um, Simmons, who, who plays Terence Fletcher, um, he, he won the Best Supporting Actor. And also the director, I don't know if you know this, directed La La Land as well. So another good film, uh, which has musical... Yeah, I didn't even think about this one, actually. It, it's got a, a, a lot of music in there. Have you seen La La Land, Rich? No, I actually haven't. Uh, people that I know, <laughs> people who know me have kind of said, that's not the sort of film you'd enjoy when they went to see it, which usually means that then to prove them wrong, I go and watch it. But no, I haven't. I haven't seen it. Maybe one on the list that I, I will have a watch of because I know that it, it did win an Oscar or maybe won an Oscar and then had the Oscar taken off them. I seem to remember that happening. What I can talk about is, is Whiplash because I have seen that not as recently as you, but I did see it back when it came out in uh, 2016. And I think what really struck me about that film was just the intensity of, of the performances of, of, like you say, the lead and, and, the, and the supporting lead in that in terms of, you know, playing the drums, I suppose, is a really intense activity you know it's something that requires um a lot of you know it's quite a powerful you know in terms of all the instruments it's the one that kind of remote requires the most kind of power and stamina and that's a real theme of this film isn't it it's almost um that that's i feel like it's got that kind of higher purpose to it almost that it's about dedication and and kind of that relationship between the tutor and the pupil and and where's the line in terms of where it becomes bullying something that's actually quite pertinent i guess in the modern world isn't it where you know, maybe behaviours in, in, you know, all sorts of worlds, gymnastics, sports, things like that, where, you know, maybe coaches have overstepped the line a little bit in trying to get the best out of people. Did, did you walk away with that feeling about it as well? Oh, 100%. And that's what makes it so, so good and so real and raw, because you can see that, that, that relationship developing in that way that it just makes you feel really uncomfortable. But also on the flip side, you know, I'm never, I'm, I'm not one to think that, you know, bullying or abuse is, is good at all. But wouldn't it be, isn't it interesting to think that the amount of, you know, um, achievements that have happened in the world might not have happened if that, if that hadn't have been the case? Mm. Um, again, I, I, I say that I don't agree with it. And I think, you know, that the, any, I just don't think it's, I used to go to gymnastics and I used to see it happen all the time and, and girls crying. And I just used to think it was, it was awful, but you know, they probably went on to be some of the most, um, the Britain's best gymnasts. So, mm. yeah, it's it's a strange one. But, yeah, you could absolutely see. And that's why they, they won Oscars. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think we're probably opening a whole can of worms on um, mental health and, and ethics in sport there. It's probably best left to uh, BBC Sports Podcasts or something. So we might, we might, leave that, might leave that one there. Shall I go into number eight on the list and probably the yeah. one that I'm the most excited to talk about? So, yeah, um, do it. So I've gone for Almost Famous here. So again, um, not one that's specifically about a, a band that exists. It's about a fake band, actually, and, and a fake journalist. But there's a lots of mentions of, um, of real bands. I'll kind of explain what I mean by this. If you haven't seen this film, it came out in 2000. It was directed by Cameron Crowe. And it kind of tells his life story as a director, or certainly his early life, as a young music journalist. Um, and I think it's kind of loosely based on things that happened to him when he was a... Um, kind of a teenage uh, music journalist and you know for me when when I first saw this I saw this around 
2000, 2001. Maybe, I think maybe it was more like 2002 because I became a music journalist myself at a very similar age to the character in, in the film, uh, played by a guy called Patrick Fugit. Um, and yeah, I think when I saw it, it, it was weird kind of seeing parts of my life mirrored. I want to be careful here to not say that, you know, this is set in 70s America um, and, and the kind of excesses of the 70s sort of rock scene. You know, I came through as a music journalist in the, the early to mid 2000s, right? And it's a very different sort of world you know it's not it's more travel lodges and uh, ham sandwiches in backstage <laughs> rather than than you know that some of the scenes that are depicted in this but I definitely felt kind of a, a kinship with the main character in this particularly around and the story kind of tells how he goes on tour with this band called Stillwater who are kind of a I think they described as a mid-level band that are kind of falling out with each other and and you know supporting some of the bigger bands of that day and I guess I you know I, one of the ways that he gets the story, you know, he goes from writing for Cream magazine, which is run by Lester Bangs, who was kind of a legendary journalist. He's a real journalist, if you haven't heard of him, kind of of that time. He then gets a, a gig at Rolling Stone, and Rolling Stone don't realise quite how young he is when they call him up, and he's sort of, you know, he's discussing the story, and he puts a deeper voice on, and that was quite similar to where I was. Like I said, I was 16 when I started writing for Enemy. The first time I got a call from one of the editors, like he does in the film, I'd just come back from one of my mock exams at, at <laughs> high school and was stood there in my clip-on tie and school shirt, right? And because they'd read one of my reviews that I'd sent in, just like sort of he did. And then, you know, I guess the way that I used to worm my way in with bands and get quotes, and, you know, we can probably cover this in more depth in a in a future episode about what it was like to work in those times, if listeners are interested, I suppose, is... I played on the fact I looked young, I was young, and therefore probably they relaxed around me more because there was that level of innocence. We can't be sort of turned over by this guy. He's still in school. And that's exactly what Patrick Fugit's character does in the film. You know, he kind of ingratiates himself with the band because they kind of forget that he's a journalist, if you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I absolutely love this film. I watched it again about three nights ago, the kind of extended sort of director's cut um of it and it, yeah for me it's it's an absolute classic and a great uh soundtrack as well it's got all the great kind of 70s uh tunes not least kind of tiny dancer by uh, elton john I, th I think i'm right in thinking you've you've seen this as well sarah oh i've seen this loads of times i think i probably saw it a similar time to you i was living with my um my friend in the first flat that i ever rented actually which was in bethnal green um she had it on vhs <laughs> which hmm. just seems like so far, so long ago now, VHS. I mean, I bet half our listeners have never even seen a, a videotape. Um, but yeah, I I liked it for the reasons that you've said as well. But obviously, I was obsessed with the fact that it had, um, what would you call them? A nice word, groupies? I mean, you know, do mm, they don't call them mm. groupies, do they? They call them band-aids, don't Girl, they? Not groupies, yeah. Wow, band-aids. Well, you know, girls that liked being around the bands. Um, I sort of identified with Penny Lane a little bit in that because... I was very similar in, you know, wanting to be around the atmosphere. And I think we talked about this on the first episode of Demo Tapes a couple of years ago about how we both loved and respected the film Almost Famous and saw similarities in the characters to, to what we'd both been through personally. I mean, I was definitely on both sides of the coin, I guess, with, with uh, also taking a load of... Uh, fanzines and and blagging an interview with Pete Doherty that time which is that other mm, story that mm. I had uh, so I sort of you know see it from both sides of the coin um and it was definitely 
around the you know the girls that were following the bands around I mean it sounds a bit embarrassing to talk, to talk about it in that way but it didn't feel embarrassing at the time and it just it certainly doesn't feel embarrassing now because it was absolutely fantastic to to go around and, and be with the band and and go backstage and you know have those experiences of, of being on the road as well and and I think that film depicted what I was experiencing really really well Mm. But just, I guess, in a really amped up kind of 70s way, that's the other thing you feel watching it. You think, God, I wish I wish rock and roll was still like this. Right. I still wish that, it, you know, it's kind of the Stones and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and, you know, huge tours with with huge riders and bands going around on on aeroplanes. I don't think that really happens as much anymore now. I don't think it's it's quite as excessive as that. No, I think, I think and things I mean, are too realistic now. Yeah. And I think your travel lodge <laughs> comment hit the nail on the head, I think. I ended up uh, listening to a block, the Block Party's first album, actually. Um, I was with my mate in a hotel room and they let us listen to it. And I think that was a travel lodge in Nottingham. So, mm. you know, it's not it's not all glitz and glam, but, you know, it's nice to be around. It's still nice to be around them. So I think let's have a total different change of pace on our next one. So that was number eight on the list. And then number nine, I'll be honest, I had to debate whether I could allow this on the list, but decided it's just about the right side of, of acceptable. So do you, want, do you want to say what you've put in for your your uh, fifth choice and number nine on the list overall? It's Labyrinth. It's one of the most amazing films ever made and it's got the god David Bowie in it. How could it not be on the list? Well, this is the thing. I allowed it in because in the film, Bowie sings a lot. David Bowie, David Bowie. I, I never decide which, which pronunciation is of that either. It's definitely not a biopic or a biopic of David <laughs> Bowie, but he sings throughout it. The soundtrack's great. Um, so that's why I've kind of allowed this in. And also, I think I said to you um, when we were planning this episode that for me, the character he plays in Labyrinth is almost like an extension of some of the characters he'd been playing, you know, Ziggy Stardust and um, and some of those characters in kind of the 70s and going into the 80s, the Thin White Duke and stuff like that. So that's why I kind of allowed it, because it feels like an extension of Bowie's personality being in this film, even though he's kind of playing it for laughs, I think. Well, well, I, I, I think you're probably right, but he, David Bowie and Spandex running around an upside down castle, or what's not to like. But one of the things that I'll never, I'll never forget is the. Uh, I'm gonna have to sing it, Rick. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it because I've got my chance now. You remind me of the bee. What bee? The bee with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Who do you do do? What remind me of the bee? Brilliant. Just, just brilliant. Um, and also the main character is called Sarah. Uh, so Jennifer Connelly. Jennifer Connelly plays Sarah. Um, and did you know, I've got a fun fact about this, you might already know this, but Jim Henson, who directed the, uh, the, this film, he created the Muppets and Fraggle Rock. Did you know this? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is, this is where I kind of, um, I think he kind of, did he cut his teeth on this film? I'm not sure. But yeah, it's where some of his kind of best ideas sort of really came to life. And yeah, I think at the time, it was seen as quite innovative. You know, I showed it to my kids a few weeks ago um, and they, they hated it, actually, possibly because some of the themes are a bit odd for today, like babies being stolen and stuff like that. But, you know, <laughs> Didn't the, even the, think puppets, about that. the puppets are so kind of realistic. It's, it's, it's possibly a little bit scary in, um, in places. But at the time, I think for kind of the special effects and the puppets, seems quite innovative you know and, and we I, I don't know i think you were born in 86 like me right you had your birthday recently Absolutely. so this yep. film came out the year that we were we were born so it's amazing to think that it's you know it's 30 
how many years now? 34, oh. 35, 34 How old years are you, ago. Rick? Yeah. <laughs> 34. I'm at that age where I forget my own age. Um, but yeah, it was really pioneering at the time, I think. So let's move on to our final, final film. And we're going to end with you, Rick, and uh, one that you've talked to me about loads, actually. Again, another, another one around Manchester. So what is it? Yeah, so, and I, and I think we said before that we weren't going to put these in any sort of order. But if I had to, if you said to me you had to put your choices in order, this will probably be top of the five for me, just ahead of Almost Famous. It's 24-hour party people. Um, so it's Michael Winterbottom's uh, 2002, um, uh, I wouldn't call it a biopic. It's not a biopic, but it's a story of the Manchester scene focused on uh, the late, great uh, head of Factory Records, Tony Wilson, played by Steve Coogan. I think one of Steve Coogan's career best performances because you know Tony Wilson was a total one-off and I think the way that he inhibits that character um you know it, it, I think only I think for me only Steve Coogan could have really pulled off that kind of um sort of sardonic uh, quite sarcastic uh, but very very kind of intellectual kind of um sort of character of of Tony Wilson um and if I haven't made I've probably mentioned this on previous episodes he was my absolute idol Tony Wilson growing up I guess being a Mancunian with kind of starry eyes of, of you know getting into the music industry writing for enemy but then probably taking over the world after that I'm not quite sure where that went afterwards but um you know he for me was the template for that had you know had, had grown up in Salford he was always very clear he's not a Mancunian he's from Salford which is the city next door to Manchester uh, you know and he'd he'd built a whole he'd built a whole scene you know he'd he'd been the architect of Joy Division, Happy Mondays, uh, New Order, um, and a million other brilliant, brilliant um, bands, you know, and I, I did really, I did get the chance to interview him um, quite early on in my career. In fact, it wasn't even in my career. I interviewed him as a competition entry for the City Life Student Journalist of the Year competition, uh, where the prize was to have your fees paid for a year, and I was rang up to be told I'd won, but then I couldn't win because I wasn't at university yet. Uh, probably because they saw it and thought, well, how the hell have you got hold of Tony Wilson? I said, well, I just asked around and got his got his number and, and rang him up and had a chat about whatever it was, the Manchester scene at the time. Um, so, yeah, he was he was an absolute um, hero of mine. Um, and loads of, Man you know, sort of Manchester scene people show up in it. We'd have to spend the whole episode talking through, but everyone from kind of Peter Kane, Simon Pegg to Marquis Smith has a small uh, cameo. Basically, you know, a cast of thousands of of the Manchester uh, music scene. And it was quite, I think it was quite inspiring for me to watch as well. I, w I remember watching this when like, I just got to university in kind of 2004 and me and all my housemates watched it and decided the next day we were going to go and start a club night and, you know, our own kind of version of, of the Hacienda and Factory Records. I mean, did we actually do it? No. But it was quite inspiring on that night to think that we could, right? Yeah, and another person that's in this film, and uh, it's just sparked off another film that, that I should have put on my list, basically, but um, Andy Serkis. Um, and he's just such a brilliant actor. Have you seen uh, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, where he plays Ian Jury? This is one of those I've been meaning to watch, actually. Yeah, it's one of those that's absolutely on my list. You know, oh, my God, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm not going to talk about it too much. I'm not going to give it away. But it was because I'd forgotten about it until I just saw his name popped up today. Um, mm. But mm. He's, he plays an absolutely stellar performance in that film. And yeah, Andy Serkis plays um, Martin Hanna in 24-Hour Party People, who's kind of like the legendarily cantankerous producer of uh, Joy Division. And I think you know, I didn't meet Martin Hanna. Sadly, I think he died before. Maybe not before I was born, but certainly before I was kind of aware of him. Um, and, you know, he, from everything I've read about him, he totally kind of inhibits that, um, 
kind of yeah, uniquely cantankerous is how I'd describe kind of how I understand Martin Hannett to be. So yeah, a great performance. But to be honest, dozens of, of great performances in this in this film. And uh, it's one of those that kind of rewards multiple watches. I probably watch it like every six months or so just on, on a kind of loop because um, you spot something different every time you see it. Yeah, brilliant. I think I'll go and watch it again after that. I think I want to go and watch all of these films again after we've we've talked about them in such depth. It's been really good to talk about them. So let's talk about a brand new film, Rick. And this time, you know, we've mentioned what we're talking about. It's a film called Giddy Stratospheres. You've been talking to Laura. Um, sadly, I couldn't I couldn't join the conversation the other day. I really wanted to speak to her, so I might try and hit her up another time because um, it was really interesting listening to you two talk about. Uh, kind of reminiscing about some of the things that used to happen in those days. Um, and you talked about this in the the interview, but Giddy Stratosphere is the name. I mean, you couldn't get a better name for a film, film like this, could you? So what, you know, who is Laura and what's the title a reference to? So the title is a reference to a Long Blondes song of the time um, and a band I was a really big fan of at the time. I think I think you were a fan of too, right? And, yeah, 100%. Um, um, and if you, I guess if you haven't, you know, if you're not aware of that band, they were the kind of a... There were five piece who were based in Sheffield, but all from different parts of the country. I think not not many of them. I think were from actually from Sheffield, but they kind of imbued the spirit of pulp. I guess kind of that DIY charity shop chic, um, quite kitsch. And yeah, they they were almost like the antidote in a way to Arctic Monkeys. As much as I was a big Arctic Monkeys fan, you know, Arctic Monkeys was all about kind of chip shop fights and and you know bigger boys and stolen sweethearts and all that whereas long blondes was more about charity shop glamour i'd call but it i was gonna say it was more glamorous it was really it was so glamorous i just remember even the way they used to hold themselves and um you know i, I used to dress like that back in those days as well charity shop glamour is the best way you could put it because me and my friends used to raid charity shops looking for the the most um the the, the most beautiful vintage clothing we could find and uh yeah so if you look at the, the long blondes and what they used to wear that was me and me and my mates used to look exactly the same basically and in terms of laura jean marsh she um she was in a band around the time called uh screaming ballerinas um and, and I, I won't give too much away because we're going to hear her in the interview in a second but essentially i think what happened was you know she she was in bands at the time she was in the scene i think she was in a lot of the same places as we were um and then she kind of left music behind about 10 years ago to have an acting career. And um, it was only kind of fairly recently, I think, that she she was reminiscing about the the, the scene, the early sort of mid-2000s sort of scene and decided, you know, she wanted to, she was looking at creating kind of a feature film. And then she kind of had this light bulb moment of, well, why don't I base it on some of the nostalgia I have uh, for that period? So as soon as I got wind of this film, I was like, right, let's get her on the show. Let's let's find out a little bit more about it absolutely so without further ado should we play it yeah let's, let's get her on the line yeah so here's uh, laura jean marsh actor uh, writer and director of the film giddy stratospheres so yeah here she is you wrapped filming on the film last week uh, how do you feel kind of a few days on um, I'm absolutely knackered if I'm honest as I was saying to you before we started recording uh, I kind of feel like you do after the last festival of the summer <laughs> back in the day. Um, yeah, just like a little bit come downy really, because it was kind of like we were living, we were living in 2007 <laughs> uh, and it was, you know, just such an intense, amazing experience. So I'm feeling a little bit, uh, a bit knackered and kind of ready, kind of getting myself ready for the next section. 
of work, which is editing and, and press and all the other sort of fun, creative stuff that comes next, really. But I'm pretty, pretty, pretty knackered, not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, it's when, when the real hard work starts, right? When you've got to start sort of editing and all the post-production stuff. Yeah, exactly that. Um, I'm lucky because I've got a really amazing team around me helping me, but um, it, it was sort of, the, we only wrapped, we only finished two day, like three days ago. Um, and I woke up the next day feeling like that festival feeling of, oh, wow, that was amazing. Shit, I've got loads to do now. Mm, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but it's, uh, it is, yeah, the, it's a different kind of hard work. But it's, it's, it's exciting because you get to basically piece together this puzzle you've made of all these different pieces of, of different scenes and different energies and different bits and pieces that you've put together and put that you know, into a film. So that is pretty exciting. So, I mean, from what you're saying there, it's a period drama, that period being 2007. And I'm always interested in films, how, um, you know, how filmmakers set things in, you know, I mean, when you're making a Victorian film, they often film around Manchester because a lot of the houses are still there. But so yeah. where, do, where have you set this to make it look like the world of 2007, which does feel like a lifetime away in some ways? I know. It's funny. It's really funny because you're like the third person that's called it a period drama. <laughs> <laughs> and every time someone says that I just think of like Pride and Prejudice or something but I suppose it kind of is it's a dark comedy rather than a, a like a, a full-on drama it's it's that kind of I really wanted to achieve that very British dark comedy um you know vibe because I I, I write quite a lot of comedy anyway um so I you know it, it, there's some pretty heavy elements to the story but it is also kind of funny um I created 2007 um basically using, a, a, well, first of all, using the Macbeth, um, which is an original, you know, I'm sure you remember from back in the day. The Very Macbeth. much so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we were looking at different locations for, basically, the, the film takes place over 24 hours, um, and there are different flashbacks um, occurring uh, to our central character, Lara, um, and hitting her in the face from the night before at the Macbeth. Um, but originally, I, I actually wanted to find, I didn't even know the Macbeth was a possibility. I didn't know that it was still open, obviously, with lockdowns and people closing shop. And I, d I wasn't sure. But when I wrote the script, I had that in mind. I, it, you know, in my kind of, like, in my, imagine, my Im imagination, I was just like, we've, oh, God, wouldn't it be fucking great if we could have the Macbeth? You know, because it's the perfect space for, for what I needed. And uh, we went and looked at a bunch of other locations. Uh, there was a I was possibly going to approach Nambuka, um, mm. but you know, since it burned down all those years ago, <laughs> it hasn't. Yeah, I, I was I was on site when it burned down. I actually covered it for NME because I lived two two roads up. Mate, that's crazy. I was there too. I was two two roads down. I lived I lived down the road on Davenant Road. Yeah, I lived on Kingsdown Road, I think, uh, and that road up, yeah, back right. in the day. And uh, yeah, I heard the fire engines and yeah. went into journalist mode uh, to cover it for NME, which obviously it was like it was an iconic venue for, yeah. for North London at the time, which I guess we'll come on to a little bit more because I know you lived, well, you lived near it and you were kind of involved with the Holloways. But let, let's save that for the... Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, but I went to, to view a few venues uh, and chat to a few people. And we were originally going to create our kind of like a parallel universe version of the Macbeth where we used a venue that wasn't uh, an original sort of noughties indie venue. Um, and it, something about it didn't feel right. Like, I was like, this doesn't feel right. Like, it's too clean. Mm. <laughs> and um, it doesn't feel 
just doesn't feel right. Um, and I kind of, I'd, I'd emailed um, Mark from the Macbeth, who's a bit of a legend. And he got back to me and just said, oh my God, I'd really love you to do this. Um, and I went to view the place and I, I actually, without sounding like a cheesy bastard, I walked in with my producer Beth and I started crying because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh fuck, this is it. This is, this is it. This is the vibe. It was like, you know, um, just had to be there really. And th they were so supportive. Like Mark who um, owns the Macbeth was so supportive and his, his guys that he has in sight there were incredible. So that was number one in creating 2007. I needed a, an in, a, like an indie live music venue that I could create the perfect um, club night vibe. And then also uh, I'm really lucky because my best friend, um, Aaron Francis Walker was uh, like a stylist and he worked in fashion in, in the noughties uh, for like ID magazine and styled loads of like musicians and, and artists back then. So he did the costume design with me and designed all the outfits, all the, you know, looks uh, and helped me with set design for all these different locations that we had, like like Lara's bedroom is basically like this perfect indie kid paradise, mm. like fucked up room in Brick Lane. Uh, we actually used my friend Charlie's flat, which came to me in the middle of the night. I woke up at three in the morning I was like oh my god we need to use Charlie's flat <laughs> hmm. so I was quite lucky because all these venues and all these locations just sort of made themselves available to me really um but I was definitely like insufferable about making sure that it was accurate um that was really important to me so it was it, that was a really fun part of this whole process was recreating that time and making it look and feel like bang on you know and I think before we get into more of the depth of kind of the inspiration, it'd be good to hear um, kind of, a, you said it's based in kind of a 24 hour period, but like a broad outline of the storyline. I know you don't want to give too much away and you want to leave it for mm. fans to kind of discover when the film's released, but what can you tell us in terms of the, the storyline and the way things pan out over that 24 hours? <clears throat> yeah, I'm so bad at this um, because I can't help myself. Um, so the story follows these two sort of star-crossed indie best friends, <laughs> um, <laughs> Daniel and Lara. And basically they go to a they go to a club night and they go to an after party. Um and various different dramatic things happen. Um Lara has to has to go to her grandmother's funeral the next day and she's clutching the, like a poem that she wrote when she was eight and she's having flashbacks. Basically, they've spent the night being incredibly hedonistic. Um, and we see all the excitement and all the mess that went along with those nights back then. Um, and lots of live music, lots of amazing, colorful characters and hilarious, um, crazy happenings happen. <laughs> um, I can't give away too much, as, as you said, kindly reminded me. But basically we see her on her way to her grandmother's funeral and Daniel's trying to get through to her and get her to remember what happened the night before. And she's having all these flashbacks basically. So you're, you're seeing her in present day. Um, and that's kind of where the, the comedy element comes in because her family are all these kind of, I call them a tidal wave of Tories. Hmm. <laughs> um, so she's kind of having to deal with the come down from hell and also her best friend trying to remind her of what happened the night before. Um, 
so yeah it's kind of a story of it's a story of music connecting people through you know um like friendship basically and music connecting people um and it's about grief and it's about uh, coming to terms with yourself and yeah basically just like a love song to the noughties and all that amazing music we had back then the storyline itself i do have to be a little bit careful with giving away too much but that's kind of the outline cool and and obviously the title giddy stratospheres refers to a long blonde song um, yeah a song that actually means quite a lot to me it's funny i was thinking back about this and I lived in a student house when that came out and there were seven of us and we were all come mm. from wildly different music scenes. We lived in Sheffield, actually. That was kind of the connection. Oh, there. OK, cool. Um, I went to uni in Sheffield, watched the Long Blondes kind of emerge. And, you know, we had guys are into metal in the house and mm. you know, hip hop. But the one band that we all agreed we loved was the Long Blondes and that mm. album in particular. Um, yeah. And even the sound of that song to me just kind of screams sort of hedonism, if you know what I mean? Like oh, the, actual, the intro to that song, the sound of the guitars. So yeah. The fact you've named your film after that song and it was an inspiration. I'm guessing mm. you're a big Long Blonde fan yourself. So kind of kind of go into a bit more about that. So basically, Daniel and Lara are central characters. They are in love with the Long Blondes and they have giddy stratospheres tattooed to their to their hands. Um, and that's who are headlining the club night that night at the Macbeth. Um, and basically, the idea for this whole film came about during the first lockdown because I was supposed to be making, I'd written a comedy uh, film called Dave's Dead. And we were supposed to film that during the period of time where we all went into lockdown that first time. And I was feeling a little bit like, oh, what do I do now? Um, and I was kind of on this kind of fitness mission going going for a run every day. And I had- As we all, as we all did, right? <laughs> yeah. That's all you could do. The gyms were shut. Uh, I know. sport or anything so yeah running running is all we've been doing right yeah totally it was and it was it was really nice actually because I, I felt like it was the perfect way to kind of escape um going to my local park and having a little run little run around in circles um like a hamster I kind of had I made myself an indie playlist from that time um just because I was in the mood for it really and uh I think you know when on Spotify your Spotify just suddenly says like recommends like something just pops up um and i only put like four tracks on this just just mental indie tracks to get me going <laughs> um mm. and the long blondes came on and that, that song and i did i just got well emotional i think you know we were all feeling a bit weird around that time anyway i'm sure but it just everything came flooding back to me and i just remembered how exciting um their gigs were um when i did live a couple of roads down from Nanduka and they came and they did this one particular show that I put on with a friend of mine there and we were th we were just threw confetti up in the air and um it was just absolutely amazing we were all dancing on the tables and rolling around in glass and the long blondes were just you know they were such an exciting like beautiful band with huge tunes um, so it was, so it came to me that they had to be this, they had to be the band. Mm. Um, so yeah, Daniel and her sing, you know, they're constantly like yelling the lyrics to Giddy Stratospheres down each other, down each other's phones. Um, and it's basically the kind of love song. I call it like the love song, the lullaby to the story, the kind of positive energy in, in the darkness kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I had to, I wrote, I wrote the kind of outline to the story and then I contacted Kate first and she was super, super supportive, um, and excited. 
and then I contacted Dorian who wrote it and you know the rest is history really they've just been they've been so supportive and so excited for the project um and they've both come in they've done cameos in the film <laughs> um, and Kate's painting a, a portrait as well for one of the scenes so yeah they've been a real they've been a real part of it I think they were such a kind of iconic band for that time not massively commercially successful but I think even now they're kind of really fondly remembered by fans you know they only produce you know they only put out two albums and I know, yeah. you know, kind of a kind of a bunch of singles but they're one of those bands if you speak to a certain a certain music fan of a certain age who remembers that scene then mm-hmm. then they're, they're kind of one of those bands that that sort of stick in your mind almost like the antidote to Arctic Monkeys in a way I'm, I'm a big Arctic Monkeys fan but yeah yeah in Sheffield, it was kind of divided down the middle. You had your Arctic Monkeys style bands, Arctics, Bromeds, Milburn, Harrisons. Then you kind of had this whole other kind of electro pop inspired by kind of pulp sort of scene yeah. going on as well. And, you know, did you ever come to Sheffield and see them play in Sheffield or was it more when they were in London? No, I was very much like, because I was such a baby. I was only 18, uh, 18, 19 around that time. So I was broke. You know, I was working in a clothes shop in the day, but barely, I should say. <laughs> I was like, supposed to be working in a clothes shop. Mm. I was constantly <laughs> calling in sick um, and just going out in London, really. So any bands that came to London was well exciting. You know, I'm sure you remember. Uh, yeah, I mean, like all the Sheffield lot, you know, I love Pink Grease as well. They were fucking great. Um, yeah, brilliant band, yeah. And uh, like, you know, the Cribs, Black Choir, all those guys. Um, it was always just super exciting when anyone from out of London was coming to play in your in, in the venues that you went to like every night. I mean, I spent every night out. <laughs> um, it just seemed like there was always something exciting to see from another another band from another town coming in, you know, and play. It was so exciting. But no, I never went to Sheffield to see them because I, I, I think we kind of, a couple of my friends, when we started club promoting, we'd put on nights and tempt people into London ourselves <laughs> so we didn't mm-hmm. have to go anywhere so Long Blondes were kind of the inspiration you know you wrote the the, the film uh, I think kind of earlier this year last year then you had to go about filming it and casting it so um, mm. you know, you've got some I look at the cast list again I haven't seen the film so I'm having to kind of go on what I can dig out from uh, from the sort of depths of the internet but you've kind of got some recognized names you know yeah. Richard Herring Nick Helm um, and then some kind of new talent that I want to talk about as well and yeah. some lesser known names but I guess you were saying before it's a dark comedy is that why you got kind of Richard Herring Nick Helm particularly yeah. Richard Herring who's known for quite dark comedy right oh yeah he's the king of it right um yeah so I I it was really apparent to me that I needed fresh talent to play all the indie kids um because I think it's important that before those clubs club kind of scenes and and, and that side of the storyline I really didn't want people to be pulled out of that universe and I think sometimes when you see well-known faces it can pull you out do you know what I mean like of, of mm. believing believing it so I cast I mean I'm crazy to cut like it's such a massive cast <laughs> me and my producer were just like oh my god we've got so many humans in this bloody film like massive like so many people but it it was really exciting just casting people and getting people to audition and also I'm lucky because I've been in the sort of act, acting and filmmaking game quite a while now I know so many talented people it was really dreamy casting lots of new new faces and finding people that would work and in different characters but in terms of the comedy side of things with Lara's family um when I wrote when I wrote the script I had a list 
of names of people I wanted to play Lara's dad and Lara's brother. I worked with Nick Helm years ago. Uh, I played a car- I played a pregnant crackhead in Uncle, as you all. And so, and, and Nick, um, I was just like, oh God, I really want Nick to play Tim. Like, I just really wanted him to play him. And Richard Herring was my number one for Lara's dad as well. And, uh, it's, you know, I'm really lucky, really, because I just sent the script out to both of them. And within, like, no time at all, they, they came back to me and just said, I'd love to do this. Um, so, I'm, you know, I'm quite, like, flattered because <laughs> obviously they really liked the script, you know, and the rest is history. Um, they've been also really supportive and awesome and they absolutely nailed their characters. I mean, they're both hilarious, but they're also good at that. I don't know, like... It, they're funny but but Nick for example has got that real he's just got a knack for getting your heartstrings as well like he's he's got that real brotherly he, he just is exactly what you'll see you'll all see when when you see the film he absolutely nails it because I needed somebody who has the sensitivity of a big brother uh but also he has a lot of really fun punchlines as well and funny funny things he gets to do and say and, and as you mentioned, you've kind of cast a, some fresh talent in the lead, Jamal Franklin. Um, yeah. What can you tell us about him? Oh, Jamal. Okay, so the first person we needed to cast was, the first character we needed to cast was Daniel, because Daniel is the most important person. Um, he had to be lovable and adorable and full of energy and excitement. And it was really tricky because, you know, I'm an, I'm an indie kid, you're an indie kid. <laughs> um, from back then, you needed, you know, to cast somebody young who doesn't necessarily have that kind of background, you, you need to get someone who's going to be able to pull it off and, and kind of res- sort of get excited about a time that they don't really get. Because Stratospheres mm. is very much a niche, you know, film from a niche kind of scene. Uh, so we put out an aud- like an audition uh, advert thing, uh, as you do when you're trying to find someone. And we had loads of people apply, um, but we knew it was mad. Like me and me and my producer, Beth, uh, we just saw his headshot and we were like, wow, I really hope he's really good. We watched his showreel and it was amazing. And then he did us a audition tape as did a bunch of other people. And it was just like, we knew he was the guy. Um, he's got just some, he's an incredible actor, but he also, he had to improvise a few uh, club, like like basically listening to, I think he, what did he play? Something like La Tigra in the background. Mm. And he was just improvising, like yelling at a DJ. <laughs> and um, he, you know, he's only 20, 24, 25, but he totally got the vibe <laughs> of being in an indie disco and yelling at a DJ. Mm, but mm. also he acted his socks off in the more heavy scenes he had to do. Um, and then we did an audition, an in-person audition with him. And when he walked out of the room after auditioning, me and Beth just got up and started dancing around like little mad chickens because we were just so excited that we find, we, we finally found the guy, you know. Um, so yeah, we're really excited. He's, he's done very, he hasn't done much, you know, so we feel, really do feel like we've discovered somebody. Um, so yeah, we're big fans, big fans of Jamal for sure. Well, I mean, he, lo- he looks the part, as I think the rest of the cast do in the kind of trailers and images I've seen. So yeah, looking mm-hmm. forward to seeing how that 
performance plays out. I've heard you say elsewhere that you weren't going to star in the film yourself. You've written it, you've directed it. Yeah. You know, what What changed your mind on that? Um, well, I mean, the story is about based on events from my life. Um, and I think I just was worried that I would keel over, if I'm honest, because it's a lot, do you know what I mean? Mm. To, to act, mm. write and direct something and, and not sort of pass out. Um, also, I'm not 23 anymore. <laughs> hmm. So I was like, how can I do this? I don't know, I think it was just a bit like, I don't know, you know, I, I fucking love acting. Um, and I just kind of thought, sod it, it'd be really fun. And it'd be a really fun challenge to try and pull this all, all off. Um, and I don't regret it, actually. I don't think I'd do it again. Um, but I, I think the only person that could possibly have played Lara is me, really. Um, especially because of some of the sensitive subject matters um, that I'm covering. <laughs> um, so I just thought, you know, fuck it, I'm going to do this. But look, looking forward, I've already, I'm, I'm mad. I've already started writing the next film. Uh, <laughs> and there was a couple of people, I was like, oh, that'd be fun to play her. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that ever again. I'm just going to direct. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think I just couldn't resist, really, if I'm honest. Yeah, and, and I don't think anyone would blame you, given, you know, you were there. It, it's, it's, I guess it sounds to me like it's semi-autobiographical without being a full autobiography, if you know what I mean. It's, it's based yeah. on your experiences. And Correct. I guess unlike people like me, you've actually... Um, you haven't aged as anywhere near as badly as some of us in that scene. So I think it looks like you can probably just about get away with it. With, just you know, about, yeah. I definitely, needed yeah. A bit, I definitely needed a little bit of extra makeup some days. Hmm. Um, and I think the wig helps. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't regret it at all. And I, do, I, I am proud of like my performances, but I did need, um, I wouldn't have been able to do it without my assistant director, Josh Harper, and my director of photography, Jack. He, I mean, it was like, you know, I, I, to direct something and be acting at the same time is pretty much impossible without somebody somebody else's support on set who gets your vision, but also understands what kind of person you are and what you need to, to get a good performance out. So, yeah, I had I had I had enough support to pull it off. Also, you know, I have to say, like all our cast and crew, you know, were just that there wasn't any beef on set at all. Everyone was just full of love and excitement, and that helped me you know, do my best, basically. We've talked there about how, you know, this, this, the source material for this is your own life, your own experiences. So I kind of want to move the conversation from the now kind of back to those times. And, you know, mm. how did you come to live in London? Um, and how did you kind of get into the music scene? I know you're in the band Screaming Ballerinas, which we can go into a little bit more depth uh, a little bit yeah. later on. But yeah, how, what was your introduction to London and, and the music scenes? I don't, I don't believe you, you grew up in London from, from birth, no, I right? didn't. No. I, I was born in the West Country in a little village called, well, it's not a village, it's a little town called Trowbridge. Um, and I come from a family of musicians. So my dad was in a band in the 70s, uh, and he also wrote loads of music for sort of TV and stuff like that. He was, uh, you know, a music guy, basically. So we, me and my, I've got two older brothers. They're both musicians as well. And uh, they're quite a bit older than me. So I grew up in a house where music was it, basically. Um, I didn't have a very traditional upbringing in the sense that nobody, none of us were really kind of encouraged to stay in school, which is kind of a weird thing to say, because, you know, that's not usually the norm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was taught to, I was, I was kind of like lucky in some ways because there was 
such amazing music in the house. And I, you know, was I was so inspired by my big, my eldest brother, Tom, is a cool dude. Uh, he, he's now drummer and percussionist for Lana Del Rey, but he was in lots of bands back then, uh, you know, in, in the noughties, but also in the nineties. And so I grew up watching my family performing in on stage with, you know, and I basically had an obsession with guitars since I was like six. Mm, <laughs> all mm. I all I cared about really was was noisy guitars. That was it. So I was I was bang into art in school and was I always sort of got like awards for for my artwork in school. But I think because I didn't have the encouragement to stay in school, I just followed. I wanted to follow my big brothers and my dad and just basically make music. Um, my mum's also incredibly creative as well, so and a massive inspiration. So I think I just basically I was supposed to go to six. Well, I went. To, I started a sixth form college, and the whole idea was I was going to go to art school, but I just couldn't help myself. Really, I, I was reading the enemy like it was the Bible, and I just went saw this bollocks, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I was in like you know sixth form college, Catholic college in, in Bristol, and I was like this sucks. This is really boring, and I don't want to be here at all. Uh, so I was like, seven, I think I just turned 17, um, and I was this sort of charming and cocky little shit. And I just said to my parents, I'd, I'd met a couple of girls in the mosh pit at Reading Festival watching Placebo, and one year where I was allowed to go to Reading for the day, uh, and uh, I met these girls, and they said, oh, you should come to London for New Year's Eve, and so I did that. And after that, Just around was, 2000, 2001, I've got a feeling placebo did reading around 2000. Yeah, so that was kind of like I must have been younger then, but they they were people I sort of spent time with, um, and I kind of kept coming back and forward to London, and I just sort of realised, yeah, it must have been about 2003, 2002. I was way too young to leave home, basically, and hmm. uh, and I just said to my parents, I'm off. Um, and I remember my mum sort of vaguely trying to get me to stay, um, but she knew like, she didn't have a chance in hell, really. Um, and my dad, you know, I think I just wanted to be in a band. I wanted to start a band, and that's all I cared about, really. Um, so that's what I did. And my, my brother was in London anyway, so I think there was a little bit of support there, knowing that he was there to kind of sort of half keep an eye on me. <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah, and then I moved to London, and... You know, made friends with a lot of musicians and club promoters straight away, um, and that's it really. And then I started started a band, started you know put on those nights, and yeah, that's what happened. So in, I think am I right in thinking you lived above or near Nambuka, the the kind of legendary North London uh, venue? I did, yes, I did. I lived um, on Davenant Road, which I mentioned before, two roads down. I think I had a stint of living upstairs for about three months at one point in between flats. Hmm. Um, and yeah, that place was kind of, you know, it, it, at its best, it was the most exciting place to me that I felt like you could be sometimes because, you know, I would, I'd put on club nights and I'd DJ there and they'd have like the best music coming in and out of there. I was also doing A&R for Pure Groove. I don't know if you remember Pure Groove. Yeah, I remember that it's like a, yeah, it's a label, yeah. Yeah, um, so yeah, I, do, I do remember that. I'm trying to think who was on it though. I do Nick remember the Simon. name though. Um, so I did 
A and R for them, and that that was it. Also, they also had a record shop at the top of Holloway Road, so I mm. spent I would spend time in there. I would, I felt support from those guys. They were quite kind of like a family to me. And then all the boys that ran Nambuka, Jay and Dave, and all the Holloway's lads, and you know, felt like a little a little family. Um, and and you know, we were like lost little souls, but you know, we were surrounded by so much exciting music. So I think that's maybe what people who have not lived in London or been kind of part of the London music scene would understand that it's kind of lots of micro scenes, isn't it? That are all interconnected, but yeah. quite different. You know, the East London scene I felt was quite different to the North London scenes. You have similar bands going back and forth, but it was yeah. different types of club nights, maybe different types of crowds sometimes. That, mm. And yeah, North London definitely had it. So I, and I, I lived around there kind of roughly the same time. You know, you had yeah. the Boogaloo Bar that was a bit further up yeah, the towards Boogaloo. kind of Highgate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, Nambuka just seems to have a club night. Every time you walk past Nambuka, all you could hear was bands playing, even yeah. if you weren't going in yourself, which yeah. often I was, right? Yeah, exactly. But I, I think what I was I was quite lucky because me and my friend Eloise, we started DJing as the Dolly Rockers and uh, we put on our own club night. And because we very quickly really started enjoying DJing and, and did, I think we were, we were a lot of fun. I wouldn't say that we were the best DJs in the world technically, but we were definitely fun and a real party duo we started getting booked for those other club nights around london so we would dj all sorts of different club nights um so we we weren't just sort of a north london um we weren't just north london girls we'd kind of dj everywhere else and um but there always seemed to be something fun to do every night of the week i don't know if you i'm sure you remember frog on a saturday absolutely yeah I mean, some of my best nights of my life were spent in there, you know, messy as hell, of course, but, you know, just watching all those bands and and being a part of this exciting scene was, was the one. And they seemed to get bands just as they were kind of on the up before they were about to hit kind of the bigger venues, right? I think that was the beauty of those club nights, that it's where yeah. you would see kind of the stars of tomorrow. Yeah, totally. I remember watching everybody from, like, The Walkman, Futurehead, uh, like selfish cunt god the rakes mystery jets um maximo park a friend of mine was dating the guy from maximo park for a while and he used to leave his hat just like hanging on our hat rack (laughs) i thought he was Um, never seen without the hat i mean i know that's why i was wearing that by always seeing his hat in the morning i was like should i steal (laughs) his hat that would be quite a good (laughs) thing to do um but yeah no the the I, I loved Frog. Frog was a lot of fun as well. So there was always always seemed to be somewhere to go. Um, I hadn't thought about it for years actually, and that's why when I when I went for this run in the park and it all came flooding back to me, I was like, oh fuck, I need to write a film about this. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in a band, obviously, at the time as well, Screaming Ballerinas. Can you kind of tell us how that all kind kind of sort of came about? Yeah. So I I that was always kind of the aim of the the aim of why I moved to London. Really, I think I couldn't wait to start a band um I'd been writing songs forever and I was just sort of waiting for the opportunity to to sort of uh find some lads or ladettes to start a band with really um and that's what kind of happened I I kind of found my feet um writing what throughout this whole kind of process of going out too much and drinking and taking drugs and doing all the crazy stuff that people did back then I was also sort of like you know, honing, writing songs at home. I was really inspired by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and a lot of sort of 70s new wave stuff um, and The Cure. And I, I don't know, I just felt 
it took me a little while to work out what kind of band I wanted to start. Um, and then I met a guy called Ollie Pound who helped me kind of build on the songs I'd written. And then we started Screaming Ballerinas and we roped in some other musicians. And yeah, it was, I would say that was possibly the best time ever being in that band, but also was a bit hellish as well. <laughs> um, we played some amazing gigs and went on some amazing tours and supported some amazing bands. Um, but we just had a kind of lots of mistakes were made through management and all sorts. And it was a bit of a weird time to be a female fronted band back then. Um, not everyone was as lucky as, as some, you know, <laughs> mm, um, mm. but we, but it was great. You know, we, we, we had an amazing time and I was proud of like maybe two of, like, I think two of our songs were really good and some of them were a bit shit, but, but I was, you know, it was it was an amazing time. We were quite big in Italy, which was quite fun. Yeah, I saw there were some clips of that on uh, on YouTube, and and I, th I think when I think back to, you know, I, I did do remember your band from those days, but from the live point of view, rather than mm. kind of releasing material, and it's a bit like it reminded me of, you know, when Long Blondes brought their debut album out, people were saying you've waited too long to do this. Something's, you know, and, and in mm. many ways they probably weren't as big as they should have been, mm. because if they brought that album out maybe twelve mm. months earlier when yeah. there was kind of the real buzz around the singles, I think I think they would have been an even bigger band. And, and I kind of maybe see parallels with oh, Screaming yeah. Ballerinas, where I kept I kept seeing you either play live or, you know, I'd see you support other bands or I'd see mm -hmm. you on lots of bills of, of, you know, places that I'd be. Yeah. But yeah, I'd, I'd never see that single come out or an EP or an album. So kind of what happened there? Well, that's really interesting hearing it from your point of view as a journalist, because that just says it all, really. Uh, we... We were offered management by Duncan, who managed Foles, um, when we first started gigging. And I, keeping in mind that I was 19 and I was in charge, <laughs> hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember meeting up with him and he said, I've already got, you know, I can release, I can release Crucify, which was the song that everyone seemed to really like and like. And we can just stick a couple of the other tracks on as well on the single and we'll just release it just to, let's just get your name out there and i think we should have just done that really but this other one we got offered management from from um i mean i don't want to slag anyone off really because i don't think it was anybody's fault it's just so hard you know it's so hard to make the right decision sometimes mm, but mm. the management we went with also managed uh 80s matchbox beeline disaster it was those guys and I don't know I think because I was I don't know I think they just thought oh these guys look really commercial like we can we can peddle them as a major label big pop thing but I was so not that I was like a little punk and I didn't even really want massive I just wanted to be able to release music but I was just too young I was too excited by being in a shiny sort of office with somebody telling me you're gonna be huge you know and like when you're 19 and you've watched MTV your whole life like that does sound quite exciting doesn't it so yeah and then they wouldn't let us we didn't release any music we just did fucking loads of gigs constantly and um and then we kind of went with the, we got fed up and went with another manager who wasn't right either and it was just a string of mistakes really um which is a real shame but I have to like look back on it and try and be positive about it you know because it's otherwise it, you could kick yourself in the head <laughs> over and over mm -hmm. again about it but but we did have an amazing time so that's one thing.
And I kind of wanted to pick up as well, you know, on you mentioned earlier, it was hard to be in a female fronted band at the time. Some bands like that were lucky, Long Blonde, mm. you could say, were lucky. And yeah, the, definitely. You know, you weren't, weren't so much. And I do, you know, as much as I think your film is a celebration of those times, yeah. I think in hindsight, we can look back now and think, while kind of the modern music scene is by no means a utopia from kind of gender diversity point of view, mm. I think things have improved. And I, and I think that oh, maybe, definitely. you know, doors have been opened. And do you think if maybe the band, if you could have, you know, gone f- fell through a time wormhole and landed now with yep. your band that maybe you'd have had a better shot at, at, at kind of the success that you probably think you deserve? Yeah, it's a tricky one because I remember, um, it depends what you want really, I guess. I mean, I would have been quite happy to release an EP and to have sort of, I don't know, just at least have something out there. Looking back on it, I think, I, I think, you know, there wasn't, we, we got told repeatedly that that you couldn't that, that female fronted indie rock music didn't sell mm. um and yes i think that the long blondes were i'm really glad they existed do you know what i mean because like i don't know it, like it's just such a shame that there wasn't more female fronted sort of bands that were that great back then um yeah we got we got constantly told I, I definitely felt I don't want to see I don't want to be like a victim, but I definitely got bullied quite a lot by industry people back then, I think. Um, in terms of just, you know, how can I help having a vagina? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like so it's like, yeah, people just aren't gonna buy female front. It was like hard buy and like everything was just so laddie um in that kind of mainstream world. Um mm-hmm. and you couldn't really complain with that you couldn't you couldn't really uh, say oh that's not true because there wasn't really any you know um but yeah i do think it's a massive shame and looking back on it there were you know i'm, I'm looking you know on our our indie our, our playlist for goodies stratospheres it's all lad lad bands which i love like don't get me wrong i love all those mm. bands and mm. i've got so many friends from bands back then that i adore and they're all lads <laughs> but yeah it's it, there's no doubt about it you know it was it was a very misogynistic world and i wonder why you know i wonder why people didn't i guess it's just about taking a, a chance if somebody had taken the chance in a band like or probably a, loads of other bands like female friendly bands maybe people would have bought it but yeah. i'm just really happy that it's not like that anymore <laughs> and, and i guess even even the music press was was you know wasn't um completely you know they're pretty guilty of this as well as an enemy reader you might remember the issue that enemy did called the no cock revolution there was the new rock revolution Oh, then yeah. there was the no cut revolution, which was here's a novelty issue of all the great female artists at the moment, as if as yeah. if that was almost a genre of being yeah. female and being a musician. Yeah, and I think that happens in comedy a lot as well. Um, you know, there it's it's always like a novelty. Um, I don't remember the new, no cock revolution. That's hilarious. But I do remember the new rock revolution and how it was felt a little bit like people were just clutching at straws at that time <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to create yeah. something. Um, yeah, I don't remember that, but that's yeah, massively embarrassing that that, that needed to be made into a, an article. Yeah, so we've talked there about maybe some of the negatives of the time, but obviously your film is about celebrating the, the guitar yeah. scene of the noughties. Um, so why do you think there was such a sudden explosion in activity in, in the guitar scene at that time? You know, you kind of had Britpop. There'd been a bit of a lull, I think, in the British music scene kind of around mm-hmm. the late 90s going into the the kind of noughties and then suddenly libertines emerge franz ferdinand 
Maximo yeah. Park, Block Party. So what, what do you think it was? And, and I mean, a litany of other names. What do you think it was that suddenly everyone uh, kind of emerged in that way? Well, I wonder. I mean, I think, I honestly think, you know, I can only speak from my experience, but I remember, I remember I, I just listened to Nirvana and like loads of grungy stuff and like 70s punk in school. And then I remember the strokes coming out and everything changed. So I know that's not a very British answer, but I do believe that the strokes changed everything. Um, they certainly did in my vortex. Uh, and I wonder whether when they kind of popped up, that kind of kicked a lot of people's brains into another gear and they started dressing differently and writing different kinds of music and it kind of took its own sort of course in the UK. Um, and London obviously became, I mean, all music cities became exciting in a new way and that it just sort of snowballed, really. I wonder if it was the strokes. I'm interested to hear what you think. I mean, I think I think it, it's been pretty well documented. The Libertines were around in the late 90s, but they weren't playing, they, mm. weren't, they didn't look that way, and they weren't even necessarily playing the same sort of music. You know, we had Anthony Thornton, who's kind of the band's um, unofficial biographer. He wrote uh, Bound Together, the book, and yeah. we had a chat with him about this, and he, you know, he thinks you can definitely draw a line from the strokes emerging. Yeah. And then the Libertines, I'm not saying they copied exactly everything they did, but it influenced their style, it influenced yeah, I think so. the, the sound, influenced the way they produced their music, and I think from there you can you can kind of draw the line from them to, to guess. And it, it, it kick-started the guitar scene in the UK. Yeah. But I think record labels then were, wanted to sign guitar bands. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. Um, and I remember going to some really exciting Libertines shows when I first moved to London and just feeling like the energy in the air was exciting. And I guess, you know, it just felt like something new was happening and it felt... It wasn't just those guys. I mean, there were so many bands at that time that were really exciting. Like, I don't know, there's some bands that didn't make it quite as big, but my I dated the singer in the Rocks, James, for years. Um, and they were always a super exciting band. Um, and Art Brute. And there were like loads of really exciting bands that were going on at that time. And it just felt like whenever you were at those gigs, you just felt like you were really lucky to be there. Um, mm, part mm. Of something that is impossible it was impossible to put your finger on at the time but that's what I'm trying to trying to kind of create that energy and that excitement with with what I'm making with this film yeah it's funny we had the Paddingtons on an episode recently who were obviously a big part of that scene from Hull but yeah <clears throat> you know moved down but what we said to them was kind of, was it a help or a hindrance? On the one hand, Pete Doherty basically shined a light on them and a lot of those bands and had them on support bills and stuff. But at the same time, then were those bands seen as kind of being the disciples of this of this kind of one king and leader? So I think it was, it was a double-edged sword in some ways. Yeah, I don't know. It's a tricky one with the Libertines because there was no doubt about it that they were super exciting and that first album was really, really exciting and so many good tunes. But then I think you know, the scene, it, it, you know, I think there was a lot of bands that were kind of copying them and jumping on the bandwagon as well. But then I wouldn't say that bands like the Paddingtons were, you know, there were loads of bands that were doing their own thing. And it probably was really frustrating for those guys to be constantly compared to them. Um, I don't know, really. It definitely felt like the Libertines were just constantly talked about all the time as the centre of, of the universe. But, you know, I lived in, I lived in a slightly more niche version of the scene with lots of smaller hmm. bands that I loved. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't hmm. like, wor by no means worshipping the Libertines through any of this time. <laughs> I was much more into a lot of the 
the more niche bands that maybe didn't make it so and I think something else you gave a nod to there was about other cities becoming exciting as well you know Long Blondes yeah. were a leading light of the Sheffield scene I covered Sheffield for a bit I covered Manchester I covered Leeds basically anywhere that was vaguely near where I grew up in Manchester I would tell enemy that I could be their yeah. correspondent and I think what actually happened was that a lot of cities looked at London and thought well London is being painted as the centre of the music scene let's create our own thing and this was yeah. I think what was also really important it was pre-social um, media you know there was in there was kind of MySpace which was like the early version and Friendster mm. I think I was ever on Friendster but I know that was a platform <laughs> at the time right and Friends Reunited I think was also quite big at the time yeah. weirdly um but, you know, I think for that reason, you know, now I think tribes live on social media. But because social media wasn't really a thing back then, it was where you heard a new band on MySpace, then you'd actually go and see them live. Mm. I wonder if it's the relationship between kind of social media and the music scenes has changed. And that's maybe why we now don't see scenes in the same way. But what do you think? Well, I remember MySpace being so cool because you could you could actually gain a following on MySpace as a band, for example. Uh, just from being on there, uh, and you could, uh, it definitely was the way that you communicated with people and made friends. And um, yeah, I would say it was hugely instrumental in in definitely creating the scene and and spreading like the word on new bands. And I don't know if you remember on MySpace, you used to have like your top, was it like the top four or the top five? Mm, mm. And you could have like a track on there or whatever. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it was hugely like important at that time for, for getting the word out about new music 100 percent. yeah we're definitely gonna do an episode on myspace at some point kind of deconstructing <laughs> the whole thing and my co-host sarah actually worked at myspace on the myspace bus if you remember that we used to go around festivals uh no that's hilarious it was a myspace did, bus they just what? used to take a bus to festivals and put bands on them basically it was like that's a, a tent stage at a, at a festival actually, maybe i do remember that <clears throat> amazing myspace bus and another one, I guess another one of my theories, because I'm, 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 I'm quite scientific about this stuff, right, about why it. there was a, an explosion in the scene. Yeah. I think the hedonism played a really big part. You know, you've, you've talked about this earlier in the interview yeah. about there's a lot of uh, drink, drugs and everything else going on at the Extracurricular time. Extracurricular activity. Extracurricular activity, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I think you can draw a line between the music scene and, and, and extracurricular activity from the 60s through the 70s with punk and yeah. acid house in Manchester. Mm -hmm. Yeah. the 80s 90s you know Britpop it was always there with kind of Britpop and I wonder if the scene that your film is about is kind of the last hurrah for that because I don't think and I could be wrong because I'm I'm old and in my 30s now but the the mm. stereotype you get of younger people I, hate, I don't want to use that phrase I might edit that out of of the modern generation right of millennials yeah, is, yeah. They're, they're much more studious they're not interested in in that kind of level of hedonism although probably what's going on is we just don't know about it and actually I wonder, yeah i mean at the moment i can't see how it's possible at all with, with the whole corona corona getting mm. um, but yeah i mean i i don't know like all my old mates from back then you know all our old i mean we lost so many friends through drugs you know i went to so many funerals for people that were way too young to die um sorry to lower the tone <laughs> but you know i think there was something about and i wonder whether kids these days kids these days fucking hell, um uh i wonder whether there are those things going on but i i think it i think if if there is another kind of like surge there's a new there's a new kind of music explosion of some kind like we had that that would all kick off again but I think it was just an excitement thing at first, like you'd 
you know, it was like, it was so exciting and everything was so cool. And, you know, everyone was so obsessed with feeling high in one way or another, whether that was, you know, jumping about watching a band or, or listening to your favorite tunes or just being around lots of beautiful young people wearing cool, crazy clothes. And I think the end of the night would come and you wouldn't want it to end. You know, you'd want it to keep going. And, mm. and because we didn't have our parents around us and everyone was really excited about, you know, sticking a song on and dancing around at four in the morning and you, you'd just be offered stuff and it would be there. And it was really, you know, it was really dangerous, <laughs> but really fun as well. I hate to say it, but it was. And then it just would quickly spiral out of control. Um, but I think it's like, yeah, I think it just goes hand in hand with not wanting something to end. Like that, that would usually be it, you know, just wanting to escape and wanting the night not to end. Um, but yeah, I don't know if kids, I, I just don't think, I don't think that there is a scene in which I, maybe there is. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that there is stuff going on that we don't know about? I mean, I hope, I hope so. Yeah, about it, then it's over, right? So that that's probably how yeah. it works. It's, but um, I, I just think it was interesting that you had, you know, it was drugs were quite closely associated with dance music in the nineties, and not necessarily bands and gigs. And then I think when there was the explosion of music in the mid noughties and I think that was there. I think then it wasn't surprising that that kind of dance electro kind of piece started to come in, sort of it started to merge with the kind of guitar sound as well. I don't think that was any mm. kind of coincidence that that was happening. Cause I just don't, the sense I get in the nineties was it was not a thing to do mm. to go and watch a band, you know, a guitar band at a gig and be mm. on drugs. Whereas I think that was definitely something that started to happen in the yeah. noughties. And I don't, I don't think that I would get too wasted when I was watching a band. I think it would usually be, unless you're at a face, uh, unless you're like at a festival, uh, and obviously that's a completely different kettle of fish, but it would usually be afterwards, you know, the after party would be when everyone, you know, got a bit messy. Um, I'm, I think I've always been a little bit too much of a music geek to want to spoil the actual show. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, you know, I'm always the person at a music festival that fucks off on their own and just wants to get through their list of bands they want to see and I wouldn't want to necessarily be completely off my tits watching my favorite band mm, but, mm. but yeah I think the after parties were always like super messy um and that's another point isn't it that I think the lines got blurred particularly in the London scene between what a gig and what an after party even was because you know with bands like the Libertines Paddington's and, and yeah. that kind of scene that you know, a lot of their gigs were in squats or were in, you know, you'd, you'd be in the rhythm factory and then that would carry on till kind of three in the morning, right? Oh, or messy, three in the morning the next day mm -hmm. or the day after that, right? So I think that's maybe another part of it, that the lines just got completely blurred between, between someone, gigs and the parties. I someone used to call, I can't remember who it was out of my friends, but someone used to call the rhythm factory the rhythm smackery. Mm. Um, <laughs> it says it all, really. And in terms of, you know, I, I kind of want to, um, I guess, to kind of close the, the, the interview, to kind of move a little bit, you know, you, you had these experiences uh, in the music scene with, with screaming ballerinas, and you kind of, it seems to me like you drew a line under that, and then you went into a different art form, which was acting, and you've had an mm -hmm. acting career for kind of the last, what, decade or so, maybe a bit yeah. less? Yeah. So what was it that made you kind of say, I'm going to draw a line under the music scene? Was it that you were completely burned out by that side of things and wanted to express yourself in kind of different ways? Yeah, I did. I mean, I was really lucky because um, I didn't really grow up, grow up with any money at all. So like I said, when I was going out and, and part of this music scene and in a band and stuff, I was 
I was working in a clothes shop in the day and just about making rent um, and then DJing and, and performing and screaming ballerinas and, you know, being able to tour with screaming ballerinas in Italy and stuff like that was amazing because I got to like see the world, <laughs> see some of the world anyway. Um, so I guess that was really exciting. And then when the band started sort of dying out, I, I got scouted to be in like commercials and stuff. So I got kind of, you know, I'd, I'd do kind of like some acting and commercials. And then I, I think I got poached by an acting agency really quickly. And I started getting cast pretty quickly in, in, cause I was, a, you know, really into comedy and I was, I, I was kind of doing quite well in kind of comedy auditions and things like that. I was really lucky that I got cast in quite a few small roles in things like I started doing those uh, prank shows like Full Britannia and um, like those kind of prank shows. I don't know if you remember mm. that. No, I do remember that. And yeah. I did it for like a laugh, really. And, you know, when you start doing stuff like that, you start meeting more comedians, you start getting, you know, and that, it was just, I just felt, honestly, like, as much as I loved being in a band, making TV shows and, and acting was just immediately like, oh, right, this is what I'm supposed to do. It was a real light bulb moment. And I felt really comfortable on camera, maybe from being an entertainer already, you know, it just seemed like a natural progression. Um, and I got cast in a small role in Peep Show. I got cast in that crackhead role in, <laughs> in Uncle. Um, I was in a few kind of sketch shows, like Very Important People I was in. And then I got cast in some small roles in some films. Uh, then before I know it, I've got a better acting agent. I start writing my own comedy sketches, start writing my own short films. And it's been about, I guess, maybe like now of, of, of my you know, actually having a career in, in, in this industry. Um, and it's been bloody great. <laughs> you know, I'm really lucky that I didn't fall down this black hole um, in the noughties and, you know, managed hmm. to create stuff. And, you know, I, I absolutely love working in the film and TV industry. It's, it, it feels like my home. I wonder if being in a band was, was good training for acting. You know, David Bowie often used to say that playing on stage with the band is a form of acting. So yeah. if you maybe don't think of it as that, then in reality, that, that's, what you've, that's what you've been training to do. Yeah, definitely. And I think just feeling comfortable in front of people as well. Like when you do a gig and, you know, when you're in a band, you're constantly putting yourself in front of a group of people, whether it's only seven people in, in the Rhythm Factory <laughs> or, mm. it, you know, supporting the rakes at Birmingham Academy or, or whatever, like I, you're putting yourself in those really scary positions um, where you're, you know, in front of a, a group of people and having to perform. Being on a film set or a TV set isn't that scary. And, you know, I think definitely, um, I, I was addicted to, to acting pretty much straight away. And then, mm. you know, because I'd been writing songs my whole life, I think writing TV and film scripts seemed to come quite naturally to me. You've had a really varied acting career. You know, I do my research for these interviews. I've seen your show reel, you know, everything from like a soldier to, like you say, a crackhead and also one of Dobby's friends in Peep Show. I'm a complete Peep Show nerd. So I've got, I've got a question around that, which is, you know, amongst other Peep Show nerds, it was considered quite controversial that Dobby became a hipster. And I yeah. think in the episode that you're in, you're kind of one of her sort of hipster friends. So how, how, how was that? I mean, you've basically you were instrumental in the, in the way that her character was shifted from, from being, yeah. I think, quite nerdy to then kind of a cool nerd, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, I was, I am, and I was, like, a super, super, super massive Peep Show fan. 
so when the opportunity to be in peep show happened i had to do a couple of audition tapes and um and i was just like there's no way that this is going to happen um and i was on set with david mitchell and her izzy sutty was just so sweet david mitchell was exactly like his character uh and they were both hmm. and i was just like i felt like i was in a you know, I was in a dream. It was amazing. I don't know how I feel. I don't feel, <laughs> I mean, at that time, I think it was inevitable that I'd be cast as a hipster. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I've never felt guilty about, about leading Dobby astray. If that's, <laughs> that's what you're asking. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's kind of a peep show fan podcast called uh, Podcast Secrets of the Pharaohs that'll probably do a whole episode on this. I'd be surprised if they don't uh, tap you up to, to appear. I guess, I guess just to kind of round things off, um, you know, you've you've had an acting career for the last twelve years. You've now kind of dived back into the world of of two thousand and seven, and yeah. and you know relived some of those experiences. Is there anything? And I can probably guess the answer from everything you said up to this point. But has it given you any thought that you might want to return to music at all? No, I don't. I I mean, I I really like. I'm just so in love with what I do now. Um, but I tell you what, I am. Anyone that knows me. I am an absolute music geek through and through. I'm obsessed with with popular culture and, and music. So what my, I think what I want to do and what I've realized after making this film, and I tell you what, like, I'm so proud of this film, so proud of it. And, you know, putting these two loves of my life together, you know, comedy uh, and drama and, well, three things, and music, you know, and creating this scene, I've realized that that's what I, you know, once this film is, is edited and it's out there and it's done the festival run and I've pushed it as much as it needs to be, I'm going to make another one about music. <laughs> I've got, already got an idea about the next film and where I want to set it and what I want to do. So I think I don't regret, I, I love that I had that experience in the music industry. I love that I had that experience in the, in the indie music scene um, because I've been able to draw from it and create this thing that's going to, you know, one thing I always felt was such a shame about Screaming Ballerinas was that there was nothing really, I, I didn't really have anything to show for that time other than a bunch mm. of YouTube, a bit of YouTube footage. So I kind of feel like in a weird way, this is a really nice way of me, you know, creating something from that time that will last. Yeah. You know? And so after this is done, I'm going to keep making films about music because that's what I think, I think that's what, what I'm here to do now. Um, yeah. But no, I definitely don't want to release any music. No one needs that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess the final thing I want to ask you about is when can fans see the film? When's it going to hit screens? So we are going to, we are editing the film right now. Um, and we are going to have a final cut of the film by the end of February. And then we're going to put it into music, uh, music festivals. What am I like? Hmm. music festivals but into film festivals uh for a period of time to try and clock up some more buzz um i'm talking to uh distribution at the moment about where we're going to release it and what we're going to do so everyone just needs to keep an eye on the website which is www.giddystratospheresfilm.com and our instagram is a really good place to kind of keep up to date um with when we're going to when it's going to be released but we will be showing it in um at, at film festivals and people can have a chance to see it before everybody else so you just need to keep a little eye eye on it basically 
Well, we can't wait to see it, and as I'm sure as soon as we get a chance to, we'll, uh, we'll we'll talk about it on the podcast again and give it a bit of review and remind listeners that it exists. But otherwise, yeah, thanks very much for your time this morning, Laura. And uh, yeah, Merry Christmas. Have a great Christmas, probably in the editing suite, right? Merry Rickmas. <laughs> thanks. Speak soon. Speak soon. So I don't know about you, Sarah, but um, chatting to Laura there really kind of sparked some memories in me of the time. Things that, you know, long, long forgotten memories of being part of that music scene. I'm guessing it probably did for you as well. 100%. I mean, it's it's funny, though, you said uh, to her that there, were, there seemed to be micro scenes. And I think that was pretty true because she spent a lot of time hanging out at places like Nambuka and Frog. And I, I, I definitely went to those places, but I wasn't hanging out there all the time. There were, there were other places that I was more often. And I think at that time I was kind of more South London, South kind of East London. Um, mm. So that was really interesting to hear you guys talking about that. It's funny she talked about Pure Groove because I think I bought my first, one of my first vinyls ever in that shop at the top of Holloway Road. Um, mm. I think it was a seven inch of some sort. I can't remember exactly what it was, but Definitely, definitely. And also, uh, sparked up a memory of um, when I was at university, I studied uh, media studies. Oh, is it media studies? No, it's, it was called writing for media arts. Sorry, what am I talking about? Hmm. Um, and I clearly, clearly, clearly remember that one of the modules was to write a TV show. And mine was about a girl who was in the music scene and the things that she experienced. Pretty much, like, no joke, very similar to Gilly Stratospheres. So, I mean, it's in a notebook somewhere. I'm pretty sure I haven't got it anymore, which is a real shame because I'd like to go back to it and see how it how it um, mm. how it fared. The similarities. Get, 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 get lawyered up, sewer. You know, you can get all the royalties now. Absolutely sure. not. She's <laughs> she's a trained actress and uh, scriptwriter. I mine was probably awful in comparison. Um, but yeah, no, it, it did take me back massively. And I guess, you know, being that you were part of that scene, you know, neither of us have seen the film. It's only just wrapped. So they've not even done kind of post-production. And, you know, it was cool to hear more about how it's um, how it's kind of panning out. So I guess I'm interested to know, you know, what are your kind of expectations for it? Or more, what are you kind of hoping the film captures? Do you know what? I think it's going to be good because she, it sounds like she is has been very militant in making sure that things were exactly the same as they were back then. Um, you know, to the, the, and, and the detail, it sounds like she's got, she's got a lot of detail, you know, to even down to the person's flat that she wanted to, to kind of film it in and, and the Macbeth, the Macbeth, the pub, um, you know, having, having that as a, as an actual place, you know, the real set and the real scene of where this, this stuff happened is brilliant. And, I love the fact as well that she said that she um, she wasn't actually thinking of, of acting in it, but she felt like she kind of had to. And I'm really glad that she did that because not that I've seen it, but um, you know, I don't know I don't know how a performance is going to be. But I'm pretty sure that having been there and it's all in her head, and she's probably going to be able to play the character really well. One of the interesting points as well is when she said they were casting for younger people, younger people who know, didn't have any, you know, have got no idea what the scene was all about. Mm. And it's, it's sort of a weird thing to think about, isn't it? It's like you just expect that people understand. And, and the majority of people, let's face it, don't understand. Because even, that, even then, the scene wasn't that big. So there weren't, you know, I'd like to know how many people were actually part of that scene. It wasn't that many, surely. Mm. Um, mm. So, you know, you know what we, it is? 
I think we're getting old. I think th this is the realization, right? That we're, if we're saying, I can't believe people don't remember that scene because they were probably five years old, it's because we're getting old, Sarah, and we've probably got to recognize that. Yeah, but I don't think it's just that. I mean, even at the time, you know, not everyone was into this scene. Well, it's a very niche scene, right? So even people my age, I would have asked them at some of these bands that we're talking about, and they'll be like, who, what? No idea what you're talking about. And actually, another thing I really liked, the fact that she said that she was never really massively into the Libertines, and neither was I. I was very much into the smaller, kind of more niche bands that aren't around today um, uh, either. So... Yeah, there were load, loads of synergies there. Um, something that I found quite sad is when she was talking about the fact that people, you know, some people aren't, are no longer with us in, in the world, actually. And she said she's been to a lot of funerals, which, which kind of struck home, um, you know, struck a chord a bit. I mean, luckily, I, I, I didn't know anyone in that, in that situation who, who had the kind of, you know, the, the same fate, I guess. But that was that kind of hit home to think, you know, the, the stuff that people used to do in those times, you know, it could have happened to a lot of people. Mm, I suspect this film will be kind of a, a dark comedy that, for that reason. I, I think it won't kind of pull any punches that, you know, it was an exciting time and a fun time and it was a hedonistic time. But, you know, hedonism, there is a come down, right? You know, there's the high and then there's the come down. And I, I get the sense that this film uh, will kind of cover that. I guess what I'm also interested to know, Sarah, is, you know, this is the first film I'm aware of that I can think of that covers this this kind of period in music as, in a kind of nostalgic way in terms of a scene. And, you know, I guess our podcast is part of this this wave of nostalgia there are other podcasts um on the airwaves that also you know are talking to bands from that period do you feel like there's a kind of wave of nostalgia starting to build for for the scene that doesn't have a name there's no name for this scene. it's not like Britpop or <laughs> Manchester or something like that I, I, I want to give it the name of the golden age of guitar I think that's what it should be called I've been thinking about this for a while but no one else is calling it that so maybe we can lay claim to it but are you expecting more of kind of a wave of nostalgia about this scene kind of from here on in is, is this kind of the start of that I hope so I've been trying to bring this back in one way or another for, for ages like my friend and I uh, used to do club nights a few years ago now because um, we were very much part of the, the the scene she was actually living in Manchester well we, we went to college together in Nottingham and she went to Manchester and I went to London so we used to kind of both flip between the two cities a lot um, when this was all going on but we, we'd, we've been doing club nights for a while. I'm pretty sure other people have been doing things, but kind of very low level. But this seems to mean that there's a, a big film being made about it now. Like, surely this is this is the start of something, right? Yeah, you, you really hope so. I'm not sure I'd say it's a big film. It's an independent film. It's one that I really hope kind of gets a proper release. I'm hoping that by the time this is ready to, you know, this is ready to go, cinemas will be open again. She mentioned she's taking it to some film festivals first to kind of build... Um, the buzz but yeah I think I think you know let's let's kind of wait and see we need to kind of see the uh, the finished product but I don't know about you but I I cannot wait to go and see it when she was saying that it's, it's not wanting something to end oh my god that resonated so massively and the fact that you said I can't let go and it's so true can't let go it, you know it's, we're, we're both doing this podcast she's doing the film there's other people doing things you know there's other podcasts that are, are talking about the same sort of era a lot of us can't really let go. Let's bring it back. <laughs> when mm, COVID's over, mm. let's just all get together and go out and bring it back and bring live music back. And, you know, if even if it's just for one night, let's all get together. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be totally up for that. And it, it's funny, actually. I remember being in, I think it was Newcastle a few years back, and there was like a 90s bar. And I was laughing at the fact that, you know, you've gone from having 60s and 70s and 80s themed bars to 90s bars. How long before we have like a noughties music themed bar? You know, we're probably not 
a million a million miles off that and um yeah i guess that that would be the perfect place to uh to celebrate this scene massively well even if it's not a bar let's let's put on a demo tapes club night rick well yeah i mean as long as you're you're happy to do all the work book the bands take the money on the door pay the bands and i can just kind of stand at the back with a pint yeah i'm all for that i was always the the, the door girl when i did club nights it's nothing new for me rick so sure well, that's that then. We'll do it. And hopefully we can get Laura along as well and, uh, and, and she can enjoy the fun with us. But we've had an amazing time chatting about this, haven't we? I mean, I'm speaking for you there as well. I've really enjoyed talking about our films. I've really enjoyed talking about your interview with Laura. And uh, I guess all that's left to say is, is happy Christmas to everyone because we're only a few days away now from the big day, aren't we? Yeah, it is. And th- this is going to be our last episode uh, before Christmas. But fear not, listeners, we are going to take a bit of a break. But we're working on some great stuff for uh, 2021, lining up some uh, great interviews, things I don't want to curse by talking about them now. But um, yeah, really excited, really co- sort of exciting kind of run of guests getting lined up for 2021. We also want to do some different stuff, don't we? Some Some different format episodes, you know, not just chatting to um to people from our past or bands that we love which we love doing but i think going into more depth on albums or going into depth more depth on some music uh, documentaries and soundtracks so some great stuff in the works and i guess we want we want listeners to to get in touch and get involved we've been getting quite a lot of kind of correspondence on the twitter accounts and the social media which is great recently but yeah if you've got an idea for a type of episode you want us to run or a band you'd like us to go and find maybe it's a band that you think have been overlooked um you know we want to kind of do these kind of lost bands episodes that's definitely something we're looking at for next year finding one of those bands that, that you may have forgotten about who were great so if you've got suggestions for that uh, get in touch and how can they do that sarah so yep so uh on instagram and twitter it's at demo takes pod and we also are contactable on the old email which is demo takes pod at gmail.com but rick i've got one last question for you because it's christmas before we go What's your top Christmas song? Hmm, it's a good question actually because we we did an episode on Christmas songs um, about two years ago, didn't we? So has it has it changed since then? I mean, I, what I thought you were going to ask me then was, I've got one question for you, Gavin and Stacey style. Are you ready to step into Christmas? So it's probably step into Christmas to be honest by uh, El- by old Elton John. You? Well, it's definitely not all I want for Christmas uh, is you by Mariah Carey. Although, by the way, it got to number one for the first time ever recently, which I found quite interesting. Um, it has to be White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Anything Bing Crosby or Nat King Cole Christmas, it, it wins for me. Yeah, an old classic. So you know what I might do now? I might go and get that on the Spotify, get on with the uh, the wrapping of the Christmas presents and all, and all that jazz. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll leave the listeners there and see them in 2021. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, it's been it's been good to get back for a few episodes. But until next time, everyone, see ya. Yeah, see you later. Merry Christmas, all. Are you going to put a jingle on there again like you did last time? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if I can dig out the music that's got the sleigh bells on it. I, like, I really like that. Yeah.